And I'm pretty sure there aren't urologists like hanging around in the shoreline in Newfoundland. Well, maybe there are. I haven't actually checked it out, but my guess is that there's not. Well, I unfortunately do see a lot of trauma, so this is a persistent pain in the butt. And some of these bleeds actually don't end up giving a long-term outcome that's poor. It really focuses and comes down to first principles. They're really difficult. I mean, you try the normal things and they don't work. Oh man, that's a, that's a really loaded question, but I'm gonna push back on several aspects of that. The cold grows colder, even as the days grow longer. February's mercury vapor light, buffing, but not defrosting the bone white ground. Welcome to the February 2022 EM Reviews and Perspectives. This is Swami here, as always, with Jan Schoenberger. Jan, it is so fantastic to be back. February, February, it's cold and snowy here. I don't know, it's probably cold and snowy where you are too, right? Oh yeah, definitely cold and snowy. <laughs> no, it is, it is It is sunny. The air is colder for sure. Lying your ass up. But it's, it's sunny and, you know, winter is one of my most favorite times of year on the West Coast. You know, I don't actually love the summer when it gets really hot. So this time of year is really my favorite. All right. Well, we are launching into a fantastic month. Some absolutely amazing pieces, ones that I'm really excited about. But before we get into the content, Jan, you have a case for us to discuss. Yes, I do, Swami. The case. Okay, so here you go. Here's your details. So we have a 42-year-old female. She's brought in by paramedics from home for a chief complaint of altered mental status. Of course, she came in right before the shift change. So by the time you're really getting to see her, the medics are gone and no one took a really great report from them because they were all excited that it was the end of their shift. You kind of go in with not very much information. You look in the chart, the triage note tells you that the report was she had a history of diabetes and she was found altered and that's pretty much all you know. There's no family to tell you anything more. So you go to see this patient and she is definitely altered. She has her eyes closed, but when you touch her, she becomes very combative and agitated. On the monitor, you see that her heart rate's 123, her blood pressure is 130 over 70, her respiratory rate's about 22, pulse ox is reading 99 on room air. Her temp though, the nurse tells you, is 39 degrees. So Swami, what else do you wanna know? Well, the first thing I'm going to ask for, Jan, is for someone to convert Celsius to Fahrenheit, <laughs> right. because I'm not very good at that. But 39, I know, is an elevated temperature. So she's got a fever, or at least she's got some kind of hyperthermia. Not massive hyperthermia, but it's high. She's got a tachycardia. The rest of her vital signs look okay. And she's got this alteration of mental status. And what would be great, obviously, is to get some other information, find out if anyone's got any other information on this patient. But in lieu of that, there's some things that we can start with. So I want a finger stick. We're clearly going to get some blood work off. And then we're going to get a, at least a cursory exam. You're giving me mental status here, but you know, grossly, is she moving all of her extremities? I want to know that. I want to know what the skin feels like. You know, listen, Jan, I went to Bellevue right across the street from the talk center. We got to know about the skin exam. That's going to help me to figure out what kind of toxidrome possibly I'm dealing with. But altered mental status is such a broad category. And with this limited of information, we're going to be taking a bit of a shotgun approach. We're going to be probably doing more than we need because we have so little to go on that we have to do a little bit more investigation. So let's start with a good physical exam. Let's get that blood sugar. I'm going to want an EKG. And then that might help to guide me towards exactly what labs and what tests I want. All right. This is kind of like an oral exam. So I'm going to describe to you what this woman looks like. So this woman has an elevated BMI. And that is usually when I chart, that's what I write when I mean obese, because I don't want to write obese. Sometimes, you know, when now the days when patients can look at their charts, they might find that term offensive. So I write elevated BMI. I don't know what you, if you have a code for that. 
Well, that sounds like a pretty good one. I might just adopt that one. (laughs) (laughs) She has an elevated BMI. I think she's about 100 kilos and not that tall. Her pupils look normal. She looks pretty dry to you, meaning that her mucous membranes look very dry. And she's also dry to touch. She maintains her airway just fine. She's breathing. She's not following any of your commands. She's kind of lying there with her eyes closed, sort of moaning. She seems to be moving everything as you sort of poke around. She's moving everything. She doesn't have any obvious skin rashes. You don't hear any cardiac murmurs. Maybe as you mash around in her belly, it could be a little bit tender because she's kind of moaning here and there, but it's very non-specific, non-focal. You can't really tell because pretty much anytime you touch her, she kind of squirms and moans. I would give her about a GCS of maybe eight, meaning that she opens her eyes to pain, which is two. She makes incomprehensible sounds, which I give her a two. And her best motor for me was withdrawal from pain, which I give her a four. And on your exam, I just want you to know, you make a little note to self of the fact that she has a non-existent chin, a wide short neck, and she does not look like an intubation that you want to be doing. And so you can do that little note to self. And yes, we sent our labs off. Her glucose is 115. We did a quick pregnancy test on some serum because that's what we had. We sent the beta quant. Basically, it came back pretty quick as negative. And you walk away from that bedside to go see another patient. And about 20 minutes later, there is this screaming, screaming that is happening. So you walk down there towards the screaming and it is this patient. She is just thrashing and yelling and it is just disturbing the whole department as the nurses are just trying to do their usual stuff. So what do you think? Well, ultimately, what you're telling me is that you've got an agitated delirium patient. And it seems that this is medical delirium. We don't have a clear toxidrome. I mean, if her skin is really dry, maybe anticholinergic is going to come into the mix. I'm not going to really go to the dry skin until I get my hand in that armpit and make sure that armpit is dry. That's what you got to do to really know they have dry skin. But we're not necessarily going to go down that route of this is an intoxicant. Many of the patients that we see that are altered, it's alcohol, it's drug use. But we don't want to go down that direction right away. We want to think about the medical delirium causes. And Jan, there's so many different things that can cause undifferentiated medical delirium. This patient does have a fever. Maybe that helps to limit it down a little bit, but there's a lot in there. Yeah, I think that's right. So, you know, this is a bit of an unusual case. As you're approaching the patient who is very agitated, needs behavioral control, as you mentioned, you're usually dealing with some kind of tox on board. And it often is in your trauma area. It's not usually the febrile, diabetic, you know, kind of patient where you're thinking about medical stuff who's absolutely screaming and thrashing and you're about to put in four-point restraints. So you're thinking about things to me that include the encephalopathies, including things like encephalitis. Could it be a head bleed? Head bleeds can have fevers. That's a possibility. Could it be sepsis from some undetermined source at this point? It could still be tox, of course. You're not suspecting it, but it's possible. And with that fever, you also think about, could it be a thyroid storm or an endocrine emergency of some kind? Those were, those were kind of the top things on my list. Yeah, I try to organize this into kind of five categories. I'm sure this is a Corey Slovis kind of thing. So number one for altered mental status is vital sign abnormalities. And, and we've talked about the tachycardia and the fever this patient has. Tox metabolic, which is a huge category, it includes anything from hyponatremia to carbon monoxide to aspirin to diabetic ketoacidosis, so many different things that could be in that tox metabolic realm, including, like you said, thyroid storm. I then go to infectious causes. So is it a infection like a sepsis? So is this urosepsis or a pneumonia where the patient's altered? Or is it a central nervous system infection? And then the central nervous system problems, a mass or bleeding in the brain, trauma, if that's at play. And then finally, if you eliminate everything, maybe this person just has dementia. But with that fever, I don't think anyone is ever going to get to that last category. So 
I like having those categories because it does help to push me in the direction of which workup I want to get. But Jan, right now, the biggest problem is this patient thrashing and yelling and screaming because that means you can't do the workup that you need. And so my primary focus right now is I need to control the patient. I need to get the patient sedated enough that we can do all of the stuff that we need to do. That's exactly right. So there's like, there's the academic discussion about what could this be that you're standing by and you're thinking, maybe I should order some antibiotics. I'm, you know, I'm starting to put orders in the computer. And then there's the practical side where the nurse is sitting there looking at you like, I can't do a thing to this patient because every time I touch her, she's thrashing and screaming. And how are you going to control this patient for me? So you're kind of torn between, you know, like putting in orders in the computer and then looking at the bedside and thinking, I can't get any of these things done because she is absolutely out of control. So in our department, we call what's called, you know, code gold. I don't know what it's called in your department. That's kind of the overhead behavioral emergency code that gets you the four-point restraint team and sort of everybody doing the takedown. And, you know, at that point, we also choose meds. The question then is, what meds are you going to choose? This is a difficult thing to do in this particular circumstance because you really need to be in front of the patient to decide how agitated this patient, where do I need to go? If they're really, really super agitated, they look like they're going to beat up the security staff, I'm going ketamine. This patient doesn't quite sound there, but also doesn't sound like the person you're like, here's a little bit of Ativan. You should take this pill and you'll feel much better. We're somewhere in that middle zone where I need to get her sedated quickly so I can get my workup done, but it's not the ketamine patient necessarily. I'm probably going to use a benzodiazepine and I'm probably going to pair that benzodiazepine with something like haloperidol or dropiridol. Although honestly, if you wanted to go with a pure benzo, I would be okay with that too. Typically, Jan, I'm going to go with midazolam because of its rapid onset. It's really good IM. I don't really use it intranasal for the agitated patient, but you could. You could use it that direction as well. But it's really good IV, really good IM, very fast onset. So I'm going to be reaching for some midazolam plus or minus an antipsychotic like haloperidol or dropiridol. So I think those are perfect combinations. And in fact, of course, in the thrashing, we lost the one IV that we had. So we were going IM and... And that did also influence our choices. But we went with four milligrams of midazolam, five milligrams of haloperidol. You're also putting in orders for things IV. But again, you don't have an IV yet. So we've got to get her behavior under control. So we get her in four-point restraints. We give the meds. She starts to calm down a little bit. The nurse can finally place another IV. So you start with an order of, of IV fluids. You're thinking about the fever and how you want to get it under control. But she's not going to be swallowing anything. So you're thinking about how you're going to give her that. Do you give her ketorolact, a suppository of acetaminophen? So the next question is, I've got to get her to the scanner. I want to scan her head. At this point, we were thinking about scanning her belly because of the little bit of tenderness that we elicited. And as you said, when you know less, you want to do more. So we wanted to get those scans. But there was no way that that was going to happen in this moment. The minute you touch this woman, she starts screaming and thrashing again. Even with the benzos and the Haldol, we give her a little extra dose of benzos. We're still at that point. So what are we going to do next? And the question comes up, are we going to procedurally sedate this woman to get the CT scans or are we going to electively intubate her at this point? This is, again, really tough call. So first thing I will say is going back to getting that acetaminophen on board. You know, we talked about a case of hyperthermia, the heat stroke case from a couple of months back. This woman is 39 degrees, but that's not a rectal temp. So she could theoretically be 43 degrees, right? This could be an exposure to hyperthermia. So I might go with that rectal acetaminophen as quick as possible, really from the perspective of let's get a rectal temp and see how hot she really is. But Let's take that off the table because we just discussed heat stroke. We're clearly not going to do heat stroke again. So I'm going to take that one away, but just remind people to do that. And now the CT scan. Jan, here is my academic answer. Tuber, put the tube in, send her off to CT scan. She'll be nice and quiet and sedated for that entire procedure. 
It'll also facilitate the process of all the other things that you need to do. But of course, you told me that this woman's got no chin and a short neck and she's obese. And these are the patients that you go to intubate and they die. They, they have a peri-intubation arrest or you can't secure the airway because of the anatomical difficulties. So I think I would still be thinking in the back of my mind about, do I want to intubate this person and take that out, have her completely sedated to get all of the workup that I need? Or do I want to try the procedural sedation? A lot of it's going to depend on how many hands I have on board. If I've got a lot of staff, I could probably do a procedural sedation for CT. Absolutely. And this was the discussion we had, which was if I were in a single coverage place, I'd probably intubate this person and get her off to CT scan. This lady's obviously going to the ICU. She's obviously going to need a lot of care. And so it makes complete sense. On the other hand, I see myself standing in M&M explaining why I had to do a crank on this patient who we were sort of electively intubating and had some other options. And I'm thinking, I don't know if I want to intubate her just yet. And besides, I don't know yet what's on that CT head. Does she have a bleed? Does she not have a bleed? So we decided because of we did have the resources to do procedural sedation. So we take the ketamine to CT, we take the nurse to CT, we push the ketamine, we get the CTs, and the ketamine works beautifully. She calms down, we get the scans, the vital signs are okay, everything's fine. We roll her back from scan. The head CT looks grossly normal to me on my first kind of look. And so we're back in the ER and we're talking about, all right, great, that we got that done. The labs start to come back. They start to look pretty normal, actually. But then what happens? She starts to wake up. She wakes up. Yes. <laughs> well, ketamine was the perfect agent to go with, right? Ketamine was the perfect agent because she's going to maintain her respiratory drive. She's going to maintain her airway reflexes. You're not going to lose any of that part of it. And so, of course, you could just redose her with ketamine. I mean, that's definitely a possibility. You are going to have to maintain that procedural sedation level of monitoring. So it's not going to make your life any easier. But the ketamine worked. You know it worked. You got that in your back pocket. But it again brings up that issue of maybe I should just intubate this person and just stop with, the, with going in circles. But that might be, again, the academic answer and not necessarily the pragmatic answer. I think this kind of case, I just want to highlight sort of how these cases make you feel, which is as the patient is screaming and thrashing and the nurse is looking at you like, do something, it is, gets a little crazy. Your nerves are getting frayed and you have other patients who are also being annoyed by this. And this is a one-to-one nursing moment right now, right? She can't get other things done or he can't get other things done. You can't move on to other things. And my experience with this kind of case is you need to just take control. Don't let them control you where you are constantly reacting to them. You're just chasing your tail, waiting for that, fearing that yell that's going to happen again and waiting for this magical sedation that may never come. And so I think you need to take control. And whether that is intubation or a choice of procedural sedation, I think those options are fine. I think that's what we're getting to the point of these. There is no right answer to this scenario. There really isn't. It depends on the case. It depends on your resources. All of those things matter. So, you know, in this particular case, you know, now we're faced with, well, we're thinking we're going to have to LP this woman. She's got a fever. She's altered. We haven't ruled out the encephalopathies, the meningitis, the encephalitis. We also haven't gotten urine from her because she's peed all over the bed a couple times during all this. And so we decide to procedurally sedate her again with the ketamine because it it worked so beautifully the first time to get our LP and get our urine and get whatever else we need to get done in the moment. And so we did it again. And I think that's an okay call. Again, it is really very situationally based. One of the questions I also ask, you know, two procedural sedations, at that point, I'm really going to start asking, what's the end game? Like you said, this person's going to the ICU. What are they going to do up there? Are they going to keep procedurally sedating this person with ketamine every time they need to do something? Or are they going to intubate? And if I know my intensivist, I know that what they're going to do is they're going to either come down to this patient and ask me, can you intubate the patient? 
or as soon as the person gets upstairs, they're going to call for intubation. Then I'm going to start thinking, okay, I know intubation is the end game for this person in terms of getting her completely controlled so we can do everything we need to do to figure out what's going on. How do I do that the safest way? Is that an awake intubation with fiber optics? Do I have that skill set? And if not, can I call somebody to help me with that procedure? And I think, you know, we've, we've given ourselves a little bit of time to really think through that. And I think that's what we have to decide is probably this person's going to get intubated at some point in this course. And let me get on board the right people I need to make this happen in the safest way possible. And again, your intensivist may be different than mine. I'm 99.9% .9 positive that my intensivists are going to come down and see this person and be like, dude, come on, you got to control this airway. So that is really in the back of my mind. And I love how you said, you know, don't go around doing your regular thing with the fear of that in the back of your head that it's going to come back to you. We know that 10% of our patients take 90% of our time. This is the one patient taking 90% of our time. If we're a little bit more proactive about it, maybe we can reduce that a little bit, but also just accept this person's going to take most of your shift. Yeah, that's absolutely true. And so I, I thought that this month I wanted to highlight this sort of conundrum that we all face sometimes about these practical choices, and there is no right answer. You can't go to a book chapter and find what to do in these situations. It is completely judgment and experience and what resources you have. And I, I love these moments in emergency medicine where it really is up to you to make a decision. And I've learned so much over the years about how to take control in these situations. And when I was a junior practitioner, you know, I would let these situations control me. And I just don't do that anymore. I take control. And I, I think that this is a good example of when you need to do it. And I agree with you. I think that intubation is, is probably the right answer. And had I not had the resources I had, I definitely would have tubed her much earlier. Long story short for this woman, she ended up getting diagnosed with encephalitis. She's still in the ICU now. Of course, when we finally got a hold of family, we got more history. It turned out that she was on etanercept for arthritis. So she was immune compromised, which definitely brought in the differential. And Jan, we didn't talk a lot about what we would have been doing in terms of therapeutics for this patient. Obviously, we're going to get broad spectrum antibiotics, things that are going to penetrate into the central nervous system. If we knew about this immunocompromised state, that would probably massively broaden the antibiotic regimen that we would be giving that person, right? We'd be thinking about all those weird things and toxoplasmosis could be here, cryptococcus. We would think about all of that stuff. Maybe we wouldn't have made that, that decision right away, but broad spectrum antibiotics for sure would have been given. And I think if we knew about that immunomodulator, we would be thinking about acyclovir and we would be thinking about all those other medications that would have to go on board. Uh, my guess is we'd all give acyclovir anyway. We did. It's an encephalopathy. You know, we don't know what's going on. Go ahead and give the acyclovir. Yes. We started with broad spectrum antibiotics, including acyclovir early. As soon as we got that IV in, that was one of our, our first orders. So we got those things in. And Jen, you know, like you said, you've had a lot of experience with these kind of patients. Give us a couple of like the big messages, the big take-homes from a case like this that people can learn and then adopt into their practice when they see these patients. First off, just remember that even medical patients who go into a delirium, we often see hypoactive delirium, but this is a very hyperactive delirium. And with patients with encephalitis and encephalopathies, they can be severely agitated. They are different from our tox and trauma patients that we see that have agitated delirium because it's of a medical etiology. But really, the approach is basically the same. We need to choose the right agent for sedation. In this case, I agree that benzodiazepines are a good choice. And then your second line approaches include moving to procedural sedation to get things done and leaving them alone in between. Because honestly, in this particular case, if you weren't touching the patient, she was actually fine. Turning the lights down, leaving them alone and kind of just dealing with what you need to deal with and just going ahead and intubating the patient and taking the ultimate control and sedating her that way. 
Don't get distracted by the behavioral emergency and forget to do the basics. So you've got to check the glucose early. You've got to start those antibiotics and antivirals and think about those worst first causes. Get your diagnostics. Don't delay. You don't want to be the person who, you know, hours later still doesn't have those necessary things back to make your diagnosis. And you want to control fever. And don't forget about pain. That could also be contributing to the agitation. And then be aggressive about getting collateral information from the family, whether it's getting a social worker, a nurse, a clerk, someone on the case to find family and get more information. That last point is so critical because the amount of information that we could learn from the family, getting that, that additional information about the patient, that could seal the deal. That could get us our diagnosis, tell us exactly what we need to do in terms of management. So I think we forget about it sometimes, but get somebody, enlist someone for help. You can't do it. You're actively managing the patient, but get somebody to help you in getting that additional information. Jen, what a fantastic case. I think altered mental status is so tough, especially when there's a behavioral component to it that you have to control. I love going through these cases with you and trying to figure out what would I do in that exact same case, knowing that I'm going to see that same case, if not the next shift, the one after that or the one after that. So these are some really great tips. And let's go from there into our show and everybody else who did some great work this month. My favorite piece, Jan, this month was the World Traveler series with Cedric Dark and Ryan Radecki looking at the medical system in New Zealand and how it functions. And this is to contrast to the two pieces that Cedric and I did couple of months back, looking at the US system and how it has all of these different moving parts, these different ways that the system works. And now we're trying to compare and contrast it with systems in other places. So check this one out. This is a follow-up to the prior pieces that we had. And Cedric does a great job interviewing Ryan, who worked in the US for a long time and now is spending a couple years down in New Zealand. Yeah, that was super interesting to hear Ryan talk about his experience in New Zealand. And there's going to be more of these to come with other people who work in other countries. I'm really looking forward to those. For me this month, I really enjoyed the take-home naloxone piece with Don Stater and Gita Pensa. Great piece. And also the one you did on endocarditis. I always enjoy talking about endocarditis. I find it one of these diagnoses I'm always kind of considering and thinking about. And so that review was really helpful for me. Yeah, David Carr is the clinical talk master. This is one of his favorites, the endocarditis talk. I didn't see a lot of endocarditis in my prior job, Jan. The last couple of years, I've seen a lot of endocarditis in my population, and this was a good reminder of how to catch those cases. So I agree. Fantastic piece. David does a fantastic job. And the take him naloxone. I mean, I think after listening to this, a lot of people are going to be like, why don't we do that in our place? We should totally do that in our place. We could save a lot of lives. Some great pieces to look forward to. There's lots of other stuff in the month, of course. And Jan, you and I will be back with everybody on the other side of the program with the mailbag, with the summary going through all of the different key take-home points. And I can't wait to see you on the other side. Absolutely. Happy February, everyone. See you on the other side. I'll see you on the other side. It's time again for... The Critical Care Mailbag. Oh, but we got a devil's advocate session, Scott. Yes, my favorite kind of critical care mailbag. Okay, now. The Devil's Advocate. With Scott Wagner. Hoo-ah! Scott, you emailed me about three segments that we've done recently that you wanted to get into. The first piece was from July 2021 with Neha Rocker talking about traumatic arthrotomy. In that segment, we chatted about how to make the diagnosis, diving into the low utility of the x-ray, and the fact that sensitivity of CT may be a bit overstated as the gold standard. Our kind of conclusion was that if you really were worried about this diagnosis and your imaging didn't show it, you probably still had to go with a saline load test if you had a high suspicion. 
And you had to be particularly careful about the amount of volume that you were putting in in order to maximize your diagnostic utility. Scott, you don't do a lot of orthopedic and sports stuff, so what are you challenging us on this one? Well, I unfortunately do see a lot of trauma, so this is a persistent pain in the butt when you have a patient who's ripped open their knee in the course of a car crash, or they have a penetrating injury that's close to the joint space. So I do have to deal with my share of this, and look, I got no skin in this game because I don't have to do the pain in the ass filling up of the joint with saline or in the old days, methylene blue. So whichever way the ortho people decide, it's just as easy for me. So I really am an unbiased observer of this entire thing because I think some people out there would be like, well, let's just go for CT because I don't want to deal with the pain in the butt procedure. Don't matter to me at all. So all I care about is the evidence, Swami. All right. So what is the evidence? Where do you have a trouble with the evidence that we kind of unloaded on the audience and maybe your interpretation and what's being done in your shop? Yeah. So the one trial that really looked at this issue, and look, anytime there's just one trial, it's problematic, but there's not great evidence on either side of this issue. But the trial, and I'm sure you could uh, insert the actual citation, and it was mentioned in the piece as well. There were some things mentioned about it that I didn't see on my initial perusal. And so I went back and I'm like, was I crazy when I wrote this down in my notes? And some things were mentioned about the necessity of specialized radiologists to actually interpret the non-contrast CT of the knee and that you know it, only very advanced centers should be considering CT scan. And that's not what I saw in the paper. In the paper that actually looked at this, that it directly answered this question, what's better, CT scanning of the knee or joint injection? They weren't specialized radiologists. They were generalized radiologists. And to boot, they actually looked at the agreement between the radiologist, you know, not specially trained one, just general radiologist, the orthopedics attending, and the orthopedics residents interpreting these CT scans. And all three groups did pretty much the same. They all were good at piecing this out. It was a fairly dichotomous thing. And I don't remember in the piece whether they actually said what you're looking for on the CT, but all you do is you get the knee up there, you put it on lung window, you know, and lung window, as you know, from looking at scans for pneumothorax and such, just really emphasizes air. So you put it on lung window of the knee and you see, are there air bubbles in the joint or not? That's it. So really, this is not like a specialized exam training. And CT scans seem to do better than joint injection, which makes me think you shouldn't go off on this alone. This should not be a lone wolf move. You shouldn't be saying, I've just decided to stop doing joint injections. But if you go to your orthopedics department and they're like, we don't inject joints anymore. That's like 10 years ago. Stop injecting joints at your place. And if you want to be protected, and we say this all the time, Swami, and you know it, but I, I say it on all these critical care mailbags, the way you protect yourself is you make a departmental or interdepartmental guideline says the way we're going to approach whether or not there's a traumatic arthrotomy is CT scan. And if that's what's signed off on your department and orthopedics, then regardless of the lack of true perfection in the study literature, then you're safe. And that's what you should do. And you should stop doing the painful and less accurate joint injections. I agree with you on the creating a policy. That makes a lot of sense to me. I think one of my concerns with this literature base is the way these studies were done. And as you pointed out, we don't have a ton of high quality studies. What you would like to see is every patient where there was a suspicion got a CT and a joint injection. And that helped to advise what we were going to do. But that's not really what we saw. What we saw was the patient's were selected that got the joint injection. It wasn't all patients. And, and that gives us a little bit of some bias in that literature base. But you're right. We don't have great literature telling us that joint injection is fantastic. And we know that it is done the wrong way. If you don't put enough fluid in, 
you're going to get false negatives also. So I think we have to take all this into account. I think you need to know as well who is reading those CT scans. I know that the studies that were done at NYU, because I was there when they were done, we definitely were having specialized radiologists read those. We were having bone radiologists, musculoskeletal specialists, because you know it's a big center where we have that available. And that might not be what everyone sees. So I think we have to get a little bit of information about who our radiologists are that are reading them and how comfortable they are with this. Yeah. And we'll put the actual study I'm talking about in the notes where there was no mention of specialized radiology. And to push back a little bit, Swami, the study patients that did not get a joint injection got follow-up for the actual patient important outcome we care about. We're not doing these studies to know whether there was joint penetration per se. We're doing these studies because we're fearful of septic arthritis. So if you have a study that in none of your follow-up has ruled out the possibility of septic arthritis, then that is the patient important outcome we care about. That is a really an excellent point. This is the difference between a surrogate outcome, did it penetrate the joint, and a clinically important outcome, which is, did it lead to septic arthritis? And if it didn't lead to septic arthritis, but we missed a small penetration, does it really matter? I think that's a great point, Scott, to bring up in all of this. Let's get to topic number two. This is a July 2021 piece in rural medicine on consciousness during CPR. Vanessa Cardi chatted with Roger Gray about a case he had where the patient was moaning and moving during compressions, but not when those compressions were stopped. And the challenges that that presented to the team. Now, what do you got on this one? What is your advice? And I'm sure you have seen this. I think we've all seen this at some point. What is your advice on how to manage that situation? Yeah, so that was such a fantastic piece and the story was so good. And all of the take-homes in that are absolutely sound. So don't think that I'm uh, going against what any of the people in that piece said. But there were some comments that speak to style that I think I can add something to the mix. One comment was made that the literature may suggest the use of ketamine, but we don't want that because of the possibility of causing negative inotropy. That sounds all well and good until you scratch the surface, really, of the true nature of negative inotropy in ketamine. Now, you'll see a pretty extensive literature on dog myocytes saying that high doses of ketamine on isolated myocyte cells may cause some negative squeeze. I don't know what to do with that animal data. When you actually look at the human data, it is predicate on the idea that you have patients who have washed out all of their catecholamines because ketamine is an indirect releaser of norepi and epi. They've washed all that out, and now that dog heart cell stuff comes to bear and is going to cause you know, horrible negative inotropy in your patients. And I've looked at all the extent literature on this. I don't think it's actually a thing at all, even in catechol washed out patients at the doses we use versus you know, the incredibly high doses in these animal lab studies, or even in the human trials when ketamine was used very differently in the anesthesia world than we use it in emergency medicine. But let's put all that aside. Let's pretend this is an actual thing. It's 100% not a thing during CPR because we are giving such orders of magnitude greater exogenous sources of catechols that this has zero effect. It's going to have no actual clinical negative effects on your patient. Now, what it has positive-wise is it's probably the easiest way to take care of this phenomenon of your patient being essentially dead when you're not doing CPR. So you start CPR again, and now they're grabbing at your hands and making you stop. This is a non-tenable situation. And the authors of the piece actually spoke to the fact that it was disrupting their hands on the chest time and making the entire team feel miserable. 
As soon as that starts happening, the response should be to administer a milligram per kilogram of ketamine and go on resuscitating the patient. And I think it is the best solution. It's not the only solution, but it's probably the best solution. Now, I'll let you chime in here, Swami, with any objections, and then I'll go into some other stuff. I like that. I was going to ask you what the dose was, one mig per kig. That makes a lot of sense. And you're right. It's all about keeping those hands on the chest because we do have information that patients who are awake or have some level of awareness during CPR have really good outcomes. So keeping those hands on the chest is really critically important. You did allude to other options. So let's say ketamine is not available. What other options could you go with? Understanding that you think, or in your opinion, ketamine really is the best. Yeah. So I think midazolam, fentanyl together, you could probably get where you need to go without too much negative consequence. If you wanted to, you probably could use a big slug of midazolam on its own. You know, we're talking in the 10 milligram range of midazolam. But, you know, I like to knock them out with the ketamine. And then if they're still moving around, you're, they're probably not doing it with volition at this point. I have no problem paralyzing these patients for the arrest because what's most important in these patients and what's so key to take home is making sure we're doing good resuscitation. That is the key. That is the absolute necessity. And anything that's going to be a barrier to that, we can't do procedures because the patient's moving around. We can't keep our hands on the chest. The team is freaking out. You got to ablate that situation. And the way I do it is ketamine. And you could repeat if one milligram per kilogram is not enough. And then if they're still moving around after I've given myself some assurance that they're no longer aware, they're just kind of, you know, moving around on the bed, then I have no problem paralyzing these patients. And if you get them back, you really don't want them moving around because you want to facilitate the other things that are going to need to be done. Does the patient have a STEMI and needs to get a cath? Does the patient need a CAT scan? Whatever else needs to be done, you really want that patient to be pretty still while you're getting all of that going. 100%. Now, this does bring up another little wrinkle that's worth speaking about because EM docs are very familiar with the use of an agent like rocuronium, which is what I choose in this case, for the purposes of RSI. Now, we use massive slugs of rocuronium for RSI, uh, way, way beyond what the anesthesiologist would use for a planned induction of a patient. You know, we're generally using something like 1.2, 1.5 milligrams per kilogram. And in a hemodynamically unstable shocky patient, I'll use two milligrams per kilogram because I want the timing of that medication's effect to be as rapid as possible. Now, the trade-off for that is the patients stay paralyzed a long time, you know, like 90 minutes with those higher doses. But there's no need to do that for a non-RSI situation. So in this patient in cardiac arrest, I would give 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of the rocuronium. There's no reason to give any more. And the reason I mention this as a critical care wrinkle is if you have a patient who you need to do a central line on, but you can't keep them still, even though they're adequately sedated such that they have no awareness, and you just, or, you know, they want to stick a, a bolt into their head where it's really important they don't move, don't give the RSI dose of rocuronium. Give 0.5 milligrams per kilogram. You'll get about a half hour or 40 minutes of paralysis, and you'll be able to get the procedure done. And then you'll have a patient who is back to being able to show you, you know, three hours later, oh, wow, you're probably not giving enough sedation. And, you know, not three hours, but the point 90 minutes later, you don't want to leave them paralyzed for any longer than you have to. And so the doses for just procedural use of these paralytics are a lot lower than RSI use. All right. So awake or conscious during CPR, use ketamine as your sedative agent. If you've got it, you can go with versed and fentanyl as an alternate, but ketamine seems to be the better option. And if the patient's still moving around after the ketamine, but they're unaware that they're moving around, you can use a dose of rocuronium at that 0.5 mg per kg dose to get the patient to be still so you can get whatever procedures you need to be done, transfer them to wherever they need to go. Absolutely right. All right, let's get to topic number three, Scott, about insulin pumps from the August 2021 episode. 
you had a couple of additional points that you wanted to make about the use of insulin pumps or how we are taking care of the patients with insulin pumps. Yeah, so this episode was perfection. I wouldn't change a word, have no objections, but I want to emphasize some of the points because they're so important when you extrapolate them from a pediatric patient to the wider world of any patient with diabetes who comes in critically ill. So the first thing, and they, they alluded to this beautifully, but they never said it outright. And I think saying this is so key to understand an insulin pump is an insulin drip. And just making that link in your mind, all of a sudden you understand everything. You understand that, of course, it's short-acting insulin. You understand that you can't interrupt it because it's only lasting for the duration of the drip itself. So just like you put a patient on an insulin drip, that's what these pumps are doing is they're just giving the patient a drip of short-acting insulin, just like you would when you put a critically ill patient on an insulin drip. Now, the next thing to remember, and they talked about this, but I have to emphasize it because I see it getting messed up all the time, is if your patient is an insulin-dependent diabetic, no matter what the hell is going on with them, no matter if they're super sick, no matter what, they need some source of basal insulin. That could be you leave them on their pump. If there's not a pump malfunction, they have some other critical illness, that's fine. It could be you disconnect their pump just like they said in the episode in a way that it could be put back on. You don't rip it out of their body. You just disconnect it where they're supposed to when they go into the shower. And you put them on an exogenous insulin drip. Now, people get scared. I can't put these patients on an insulin drip. They're sick. Well, critical illness leads to insulin resistance, not that they're going to get incredibly hypoglycemic because they're critically ill. It's the opposite. They get insulin resistant. But if you're scared, you don't know the dose. Oh, or maybe they have the thing that actually could lead to hypoglycemia at normal insulin doses, which is renal failure. Here's the magic. If you put pretty much any patient on an insulin drip at one unit an hour, it should keep them out of DKA. It may not fully control their sugars. There may need to be additional work done by your intensivist later on, or you'll put them on a sliding scale to take care of that. That's fine. You don't care about that. High sugars for a few hours in the ED, not a big deal. Putting a patient in DKA is, and in general, if you put them on one unit an hour, whether that's by their pump, and I'm not asking you to adjust that that would be the endocrinologist doing it, or easier, disconnect the pump, put them on an exogenous insulin drip, one unit an hour, they should stay out of DKA. Now, they might have so much insulin resistance that they start going into mild DKA despite that. Well, then it could be adjusted later by you or your buddies. But that is a beautiful starting place. They will not get hypoglycemic. You still put them on round the clock finger sticks to make sure, but you're very safe. You can give non-super critically ill patients their Lantus, even if they're sick, even if they're coming into the hospital with the pneumonia, give them their normal Lantus dose for the sake of all that is holy in your life. Don't hold their Lantus. If they're critically ill, you could hold their Lantus and put them on an insulin drip, but you can't hold their Lantus or whatever long-acting insulin they're on and put them on nothing if they're an insulin-dependent patient. Insulin-dependent diabetic patient with an insulin pump, if they come in critically ill and the pump is working, leave the pump, let it do its job. If the pump isn't working or they don't have a pump, then start them on an insulin drip. And what you're saying is that even if they're not in DKA, you put that insulin drip on and you can put it on at one unit an hour just to make sure that they are getting some basal level of insulin. And then you can follow the sugars and that can be adjusted. You can call the endocrinologist and say, hey, here's the situation. What should I set it at? But that can be done after that initial resuscitation. And unless they are really, really critically ill, you should be giving them their long-acting insulin. Yes. And I will say just this. 
If I'm going to leave a really sick patient on their pump, it is only after consulting with their endocrinologist. If I have, I'm in a place where I don't have an endocrinologist to consult with, I think the move is disconnected in a way that you're not burning the actual sensor that's implanted, right? So just like they said in the piece, don't rip it out of their stomach, disconnect it where it's supposed to, tell the patient, disconnect it so that you can put it back on and just put them on an insulin drip. And then you're so safe. Everything is good. If they need to get transitioned back to their insulin pump, then their, their sensor still should be good. If they you know, want to put them, keep them on the insulin drip, then you look like a million bucks. So that's the win. So I don't leave them on their pump in critical illness, not you know, a patient just coming to the hospital. In critical illness, unless I spoke to their endocrinologist, I'll just put them on the insulin drip. And the other pitfall to avoid, because this is such an egg on your face moment, is if you have a patient with an insulin pump who you're clearing in the ED, and you've now gotten their ketones cleared, they're looking like a million bucks, and you want to send them home, make sure your house staff doesn't give the patient Lantus because, or long-acting insulin, because as soon as you do that, now they can't get put on their pump to go home. And this is a patient who don't stay on Lantus, they stay on their pump. Lantus is a substitute for the pump. Don't do it. The way you transition these patients is you might have run a different insulin drip dosage through your IV, the pump was off, and then at the end of it all, you call up the endocrine and you say, okay, we're done. And they'll tell you to put them back on the pump as opposed to giving long-acting insulin. And if you had a patient you could have sent home and now all of a sudden you gave the insulin pump patient a long-acting insulin, then they're going to have to spend time in the hospital and everyone's going to be pissed off. Fantastic. I think those are some great points. And Scott, I said up front that we had three questions. We actually have a fourth Liar! question. I'm throwing in one more. This was the September 2021 piece on central retinal artery occlusion with Jesse Werner and Deidre St. Peter. And they chatted about identification and treatment, but you just wanted to remind everybody about a possible role for lytics here. Yeah. And I'm not advocating this. And in fact, you know, the evidence on lytics in general are a really fraught area. What I will say, because lytics are a very litigious area, is you better check if you don't already know the answer to this with your stroke neurologist or your general neurologist, if you don't have stroke neurologist. Are we at our center within three hours or four and a half, depending on you know, how crazy you want to get, considering central retinal artery occlusion a stroke of the eye? Because some places are, and some places are lysing these patients. And if you work in a place that they would lyse these patients and you don't call a stroke activation and the patient is out of their window, there's no good evidence in my mind that you've done anything bad by them, but there is fantastic evidence that you are now liable for a suit. If the Standing practice in your hospital is to lice these patients, and these patients have a permanent loss of vision because you did not notify your neurologist. That is a very dangerous situation. So today, if you don't know the answer, have someone in your group call up neurology and say, do we offer lysis for CRAO? And if the answer is yes, you better make a protocol to have rapid identification and calling out for these patients. This is a really important point because I find it really does vary stroke neurologist to stroke neurologist, center to center. You really have to find out what's being done at your place. We did a nice segment a while back with Evie Marcolini talking about, is this the eye or is this the brain? That's a good one to go back to, to help you to really identify that CRAO. And then like Scott said, find out what is being done in your place, whether lytics are being offered to those patients. So you know what standard practice is for your hospital group. Summary. Scott, that's the devil's advocate. Four topics, hard hitting stuff, some really good points here. I think there's going to be still a lot of argument about that traumatic arthrotomy, but I think it's important for us to see both sides of this, where the literature lies. Hopefully we get more data on that particular topic 
Ketamine for consciousness and CPR makes a lot of sense. I think Vanessa and Roger agreed, but it's good to get into this a little bit more. And then the role of that paralytic, if the patient's still moving around and it's limiting your ability to do what you need to do. The insulin pump stuff, I think, again, this is something that intimidates us between the piece in August and talking a little bit more about them now. I definitely feel a lot more comfortable about managing those insulin pumps with the patient. And then lastly, that CRAO and thinking about lytics in those patients, if that is standard practice in your institution. Scott, thanks so much for diving into all of this. I know that we have more of these devil's advocate pieces coming down the line. Can't wait to get back into it with you. So much fun. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. Rural Medicine Talks. So this story is a little different than the usual rural med cases, as it takes place on a boat. That's right. Her name's Cardi B, and we're going to talk about rural medicine on a boot, which is my way of doing a Scottish-Canadian accent. It's crap! Continue. Yeah, well, it's funny because I actually also do some work for a company called Praxis that provides medical backup by phone for things like fishing vessels, some private ships, and then some scientific research stations scattered about the far north. And how it works is that someone from the boat or research station will call in to our number, and then once one of the docs accepts the call, a file gets sent to our computer or smartphone with a list of the medications available on that particular boat or site. Usually we end up talking to the captain of the ship, who has been trained to ask certain basic questions and hopefully take some vital signs. Sometimes we also get calls from the JRCC, which is the Joint Rescue Coordination Centre, which is a service provided by the Royal Canadian Air Force and the Coast Guard. So they run rescue services when there's someone on a boat in, out there in the waters who needs medical assistance. These calls can be a wee bit trickier, as the people on board don't necessarily speak French or English. They could be anyone sort of coming into the waters there. And we don't know what medical supplies they have on board, if any. And our conversations can be pretty choppy because they're being patched through satellite phones via the Coast Guard Rescue Center. But luckily, this case I'm about to tell you about happened on one of the fishing vessels with whom we have fairly regular contact. And it occurred about 200 miles off the coast of Newfoundland in the far east of Canada. So the call came through at about 1 p.m. And the captain let me know that he had a 52-year-old male who hadn't been able to pee since the night before. This patient was known for hypertension, and he took Ramipril 10 milligrams every day. Ramipril is an ACE inhibitor, for those that are ignorant like me. He also had sleep apnea. He actually used a CPAP machine, and the captain described him as a quote-unquote pretty big guy. He took no other medications and it had no allergies. And he'd been on the ship for about 10 days at that point, and they were planning to be at sea for approximately another seven to eight days. He had felt totally fine the day before until around supper time. That's when he had noticed some slight discomfort when voiding urine. Now, at that point, he had not had any frequency, urgency, or any sense of incomplete emptying. The dysuria that he was experiencing was pretty intense, and there was no discharge of blood, he had no history of new sexual contacts prior to getting on the boat or on the boat, he had no redness or itching at the site, and he had no history of trauma. So that had been in around supper time, and then the dysuria had recurred again at 9.30 p.m. when he went to void just before going to sleep. He was able to sleep for a few hours, but from 3 a.m. onwards, he was completely bothered and kept awake by the sensation of needing to void. However, he was totally unable to void at that point. He couldn't even get out a few drops. He thought maybe he was subconsciously scared of the pain recurring, so he tried to not to focus on needing to pee and was trying to lie down to relax, but he simply couldn't settle. The sensation of needing to void was getting more and more intense, and it basically lasted all through the early hours of the morning and all morning. He couldn't do his morning shift. And at around 1 p.m., he notified the captain, and they called me. 
Now, by that time, the last void had been about 16 hours earlier. He'd had no fever or chills, no vomiting, but was beginning to feel nauseated. He had no back pain or flank pain. He had no chest pain, no cough, no myalgias or shortness of breath. This was taking place during the peak of the COVID pandemic, so we always asked all of those COVID questions. And while he hadn't eaten any solids since supper the night before, he was drinking liquids. In fact, he was drinking a lot of liquids. He'd been drinking so much in order to try and get himself to pee that he probably had about two liters in the previous six hours. He had tried taking Tylenol at about 5 a.m., but he didn't have any change in his symptoms or in his ability to void. All right, seems like a pretty standard, can't pee, got it. What did he look like? Uh, Can we get a visual? So the captain reported that the patient at this point was lying down and staying very still. He appeared to be in pain and looked a wee bit pale and sweaty. He was talking quietly and trying not to move. His blood pressure at that point was 189 over 96. His heart rate was 110. He was afebrile and his rest rate was about 22 to 24. So under my direction over the telephone, the captain felt the patient's abdomen. He said it felt soft above the belly button, but was pretty painful below it. And the patient was definitely much more uncomfortable when the abdomen was being touched. All right, so over the phone in 17 different languages, what were you thinking, Cardi B? So I was thinking that this was probably a case of acute urinary retention on a background of possible UTI versus prostatitis, given the few episodes of mild dysuria that he had before the start of the retention. It could also have been um, acute urinary retention due to an impacted stone. But given the lack of classic renal colic symptoms preceding the retention, this seemed to be less likely, but I was certainly still considering it. And it could also have been BPH, although this seemed pretty unlikely because it was very sudden onset and he had no previous history of BPH symptoms. Prostate cancer also crossed my mind, but again, this seemed like too abrupt of an onset for symptoms for that to have been the presenting issue, but it's certainly on the differential. So I kept coming back to the fact that we had this a case of acute urinary retention with a possible UTI as a likely source. But in a way, the cause didn't really matter here because this patient was in severe urinary retention and was 200 nautical miles from shore. Not just 200 nautical miles from a urologist, just from shore. And I'm pretty sure there aren't urologists like hanging around in the shoreline in Newfoundland. Well, maybe there are. I haven't actually checked it out, but my guess is that there's not. Obviously, I needed to treat this underlying cause eventually, but What I really needed to do was decompress this bladder, because I was clearly concerned that this bladder would actually explode. I don't think exploding bladders is really a thing, although it should be. So what did you do? Well, the first thing I requested was that they stop the boat and turn it towards shore. This is always a tough call because turning a boat around has a direct financial impact for all of the fishermen and for the company. I was thinking that I was probably going to need to send a helicopter or a rescue boat to get the patient, and so the rest of the crew would probably be able to return to work afterwards. But in the meantime, during the hours it would take to get the patient off the boat, I at least wanted the boat to be going in the right direction, towards that shoreline covered with urologists. Then I pulled up the medication list for that boat. So this ship was remarkably well equipped in that it had a bunch of different medications and even had urine test strips to check for UTIs. Of course, to use a urine test strip, I would need a urine sample, which was clearly the problem that I was starting off with. Remind me a little bit of that song of There's a Hole in My Bucket. There's a very big hole in the bottom of me bucket. I can't be you, so we all say fuck. It did have tamsulosin. So I asked for them to try 0.8 milligrams of tamsulosin and a gram of acetaminophen, as he was in a lot of discomfort. I also asked for a dose of ciprofloxacin, 500 milligrams, in case this was a UTI or prostatitis. At least we could start to sort of calm that side of it down. I also asked the captain to call for a medevac, because even if I got this issue resolved in the short term, we wouldn't know what had caused the issue, and he was certainly at risk of it recurring. And so the last thing we would want would be for him to be sailing even further away from medical care. 
So they went off to give him the medications and call for the medevac, and I asked them to call me back in an hour for an update or earlier if the patient was not well. And in the interim, you did what? I would like to say that I went about my normal business for the next hour while waiting for the callback, but that would be a lie. What I actually did was look up how to do suprapubic catheters if you're on a boat and have no medical equipment. And it turns out that there are not a lot of YouTube channels on rogue suprapubic catheter insertion. Hey, it's Owen Chase. Welcome back to another episode of Newfie Ocean Medical Procedures. Today we'll be covering the suprapubic catheter insertion, but first, hit that subscribe button, like, and visit us on Patreon at patreon.com slash I was trying to visualize talking the captain of a ship through a procedure I was going to have to improvise with equipment from a fishing vessel, and it became obvious pretty quickly that this just wasn't going to be a sensible choice unless the patient was actively dying and there was simply no other option. I figured that we might be able to get away with using a sharpie to find the spot where to make the incision, a fillet knife, it was a fishing vessel after all, and a plastic Bic-style pen with a removable inside, so it would be a bit like a trocar with a needle, and that would maybe give us the ability to relieve the pressure. But then, of course, I was going to be stuck with how to maintain that catheterization after that fact, and that was not obvious, and I really wasn't even going there because I couldn't figure out how I was going to do this in any secure way. I wasn't even sure that it was ethically the right thing to do. Could I really ask crew members to do this procedure on their colleague? I really didn't think so, but I figured it was better to have thought about it ahead of time and thought it through beforehand. So I kept this last-ditch step in the back of my head, and I waited for the call. It was actually about 35 minutes after the first call that my phone rang. The fact that they were calling back earlier than planned made me nervous, of course, and had me thinking about my MacGyver setup and wondering if I was going to have to use it. Turns out the medications had not been effective, which really didn't surprise me as it was too short of a time, and also I didn't know what was causing the obstruction. The patient was getting increasingly anxious, and he was beginning to sweat more profusely now. I asked for a repeat set of vitals, and his blood pressure was still elevated at around 180 over 95. His heart rate was now around 118, and he remained afebrile with normal SATs. His respirate was certainly elevated, probably more 24 to 26 at this point, but that didn't surprise me given the degree of discomfort he was in. The medevac had been called, and the helicopter would be there in approximately two hours. This made me kind of queasy, as calling for a helicopter rescue at sea isn't a benign intervention. People are putting their lives at risk to carry out such a rescue, but I really didn't see any other way. So at that point, I asked him to give him one milligram of lorazepam and call me back in 30 minutes. Why lorazepam specifically? Well, on a certain level, I chose lorazepam because I was thinking, what the heck else can I do here? And I know that lorazepam affects skeletal muscles rather than visceral smooth muscles, but I really felt there was a strong component of anxiety here, and I really wanted to try this first. What about uh, morphine or some other opiate analgesia? What about that, Cardi B? What about that? I kept sort of thinking about the morphine, but not going straight to it because I was worried based on his body habitus that I was going to need to give him a fair whack of morphine to even touch the pain he was feeling. And based on his history of sleep apnea, I started envisaging this nasty airway scenario where I finally managed to get his pain under control, but now he was so knocked out from the morphine that he was having apneic spells. So I tried to keep his list of emergent medical problems down to one. And of course, while benzos can also decrease your respiratory drive, I was thinking, well, let's see if we can at least take the edge off his anxiety and maybe that will help and he can go from there. And so what happened? Well, 20 minutes later, the phone rang and it was them. They were jubilant. He had voided a huge amount of urine and he was feeling much, much better, which meant that myself and the captain were also feeling much, much better. They had been very proactive and they'd already dipped his urine and it showed three plus lukes and positive nitrites 
and two plus blood, so I figured this was a UTI, and I continued the Cipro. The medevac still came and took him away, and it all went well on that front. They made it back to shore, and that team of urologists somewhere in Newfoundland took care of him. And then, as usual, after it was over, I tried to reflect on some of the lessons that were learned. So reflect away, Cardi V. Reflect away. I learned that having Tamsulosin on board a boat is a great idea. For stones, for sure, but also for this sort of situation. So I'm definitely encouraging people, if you're going somewhere remote, bring some Tamsulosin. It is, of course, hard to know if it was the Tamsulosin or the anxiolytic that had the effect, because perhaps it was just the delayed time for Tamsulosin to kick in that actually worked. But either way, if this happens again, I'll be trying them both. I also probably would have given morphine up front, as this, of course, is a smooth muscle relaxant and would have decreased the pain and likely the associated anxiety. But that airway concern was really niggling at the back of my head. And as I said, I was trying to decrease the number of acute medical problems that this patient was having on board the ship in the middle of nowhere rather than adding to them. So it was a really interesting case for me. It made me think through a lot of steps that I might have to take and which I thankfully didn't have to take. Number one being guiding a fishing vessel captain through the insertion of a Bic pen suprapubic catheter with a fillet knife. But it made me do a bit more research on acute urinary retention and to remember not to just get stuck into one train of thought in terms of, you know, Gimson Tazulosin and insert a catheter because sometimes you just don't have a catheter. Excellent. Simple case. No death or destruction in this bad boy. Another trick that I have used is literally putting patients into a warm bath of water. That can be hard in the adult, but in the kids, for example, you know, I've uh, got them in the sink uh, with water and make it warm and a little anxiolytic and then they pee like a racehorse. That term pee like a racehorse apparently comes from racehorses given uh, diuretics before the race. I don't know, but that can help as well. So uh, let us know if you've got any other tricks when you don't have a Foley catheter and you don't have anybody who can use the Foley catheter and you're a couple of hundred miles offshore. What are your tricks? Thanks, Cardi B. And I'm pretty sure there aren't urologists like hanging around in the shoreline in Newfoundland. Well, maybe there are. I haven't actually checked it out, but my guess is that there's not. Uh, does anyone need urinary catheter? Can I give a catheter to this sea otter? We're all two to put a catheter here on the beach. I'll help you. There's a lot of us here on the beach. There's a ship. Everyone wave. Maybe they have a UTI they need help with. Look what Hello? I found. Look what look what washed up on shore. It looks like a, a, a metal bucket with a huge hole in it that someone threw overboard. There's a very big hole in the bottom of me bucket. I can't be used, so we all say f- even though we love the bucket, we threw it overboard. Now we'll never get to see the lovely bucket no more. If you're on the ocean, bring Tamsulos. Accumulating data has demonstrated a significant rise in the diagnosis of infectious endocarditis over the last couple of years. Of course, we don't see it every day, probably not even every month. And so we rely on our classic education that we got in medical school for making the diagnosis. We last discussed this topic back in 2015, making it the perfect time to revisit it and revise our approach. To do that, I'm here with Dr. David Carr, Associate Professor in the Division of Emergency Medicine at the University of Toronto. David, welcome back to MRAP. Car. Thanks for having me. Great to be back. So David, I was recently scouring through podcasts and I saw one by you entitled Endocarditis Will F You Up. And I realized that this talk was exactly what we wanted to get into. And, and of course, that's why you're here. Now, this is a family program. 
So we're going to have to try and keep it pleasant. You think you can do that? I'll do my best. <laughs> I don't want to I don't want to put too much handcuffs on you, but we're going to do our best and try. Diagnosis. And what I really want to start is by focusing in on the diagnosis cuz I think that's where the real challenge is. We can almost even look up management. Management really probably hasn't changed too much, but the diagnosis is tricky. Why do we miss this diagnosis? Yeah, it really focuses and comes down to first principles. It really focuses on history, physical exam, and an approach to blood cultures, which really wasn't taught to us in school. And I think those are the key features, which obviously mean more discussion, but that's what it comes down to. All right, so let's get into those pieces. When we talk about the standard diagnostic kind of algorithm or diagnostic criteria, there's a lot of focus on blood cultures. And let's be honest, David, that's uncommon that that's going to help us in the emergency department. Unless the patient had outpatient blood cultures drawn or they were in your ED a couple of days ago, we're not going to have that information. So clearly I can't take every patient with nonspecific symptoms and work them up for endocarditis. I can't rely on the blood cultures to be there. So which symptoms should I key in on? I'm going to make I'm a simple person, and I'm going to make this very simple. And it sounds almost too simple, but it's fever. And I know you're not going to like this, but remember that up to 96% of patients with endocarditis have a fever, and it needs to be on your radar. Now, obviously, in these COVID times, everyone has fever, and people who can't smell and can't taste and have a fever don't have endo. But it needs to be on your radar when you don't have an origin. Remember, in emergency medicine, it's a lot about what it's not and less about what it is. But to me, when I see someone with fever and there's no clear source, it's always been malaria, meningitis, and endocarditis. And my history, my physical exam has to show that I've considered that. Fever and travel, you're going down the malaria pathway. Fever, maybe in a little bit of that headache or confusion, we're going down the meningitis and cephalitis pathway. I guess it's fever plus what? I know you love the plus one. So fever plus what makes you go down the route of endocarditis? Yeah, I'm not even at plus one, but I will certainly go plus one with you because I'm even not even there yet. I think we also have to say fever and murmur. When we think about signs and symptoms of endo, the problem with this topic is it's sold to us as a Duke's criteria. You memorize those for your boards. None of that really is emergency medicine focus. It's really about fever and murmur. Remember that 90% have a murmur, at least up to it. So you kind of have to dust off your stethoscope. And you and I have been on social media talking about in COVID, are we wearing stethoscopes? This is one of the diagnoses where you use it. The other problem is when you study for your boards, you're taught about oasters and splinters and Janeways and Roth spots. Apart from the fact that I can't even see in people's eyes to look for raw spots, really, those are occurring in only about 5 to 10% of the time. What I think people need to look for is look for fever, listen to murmur, and look at people's teeth. I think we need to devalue the classics and overvalue people's teeth or a previous dental visit or procedure in the past two weeks. All right. So previous dental work, bad dentition, fever, murmur, that's going to push you down this pathway. One of the tricky parts about murmur, David, is that our emergency departments are loud. It is hard to hear murmurs well. And couple that with the fact that we don't use our stethoscopes nearly as much as we used to means that we're not as good at it. What I am pretty good at is ultrasound. So can we use ultrasound, point of care ultrasound instead? 
When we do a transthoracic, now I know TEE is becoming a big critical care emergency department tool, but if we just talk transthoracic, when you're looking for right-sided lesions, just based on the anterior part of the heart, they actually project quite well, and you might get sensitivities about 60%. So you actually might see something, and it will shock you when you look, but I get it. To hear a diastolic murmur with a, a stethoscope or one of those disposable stethoscopes in a crazy chaotic emerges hard, I do think putting the probe on is a great idea. You will be surprised what you will catch. And I think this is important because if you don't look for it, you're not going to find it. And if you just go into it and say, well, my ultrasound skills aren't that good, or I'm never going to find this small little lesion, then you're not going to look for it and you're not going to find it. And the findings are very specific. If you have a patient with a fever, you look with your ultrasound and you see something on one of the valves, that's going to really push you towards endocarditis. Now, you're still probably going to get a quote unquote formal echo from your cardiologist to confirm that diagnosis, but it's pushing you down that pathway. I want to take a little bit of a step back to that plus one, because we talked about the fever plus murmur. We talked about fever plus our ultrasound findings, but there are some historical features too that are important for us to key in on. And you talked about the dental visit or the poor dentition. What are the other groups of patients that we need to focus on this diagnosis being at the top of our list for fever without some other source? When I think about it, I think about the four suspects, two usual and two suspect. And then I think about the four ways in which they present. Usual suspects. All right, you all know the drill. Number one, step forward. So the first usual suspect, and there's two usual suspects, is IV drug users. And I think you and I both can speak as North Americans of the pandemic, and clearly COVID has worsened things. But if we look at endocarditis in the past 15 years, we're talking about a five to tenfold increase in cases. And it's not because of rheumatic heart disease and valve replacements. It's because of the IV drug use epidemic. You take IV drug users with fever, about 15% will have endocarditis and 25 to 40% will be bacteremic. So IV drug users may be challenging patients, but if they come in with fever, there's too much badness going on that they can't leave your department without a workup. I couldn't agree more. We, we kind of assume if, if the patient has a history of IV drug use and they say they had a fever at home or they have a fever in the emergency department, we assume that's endocarditis and work them up for it. I, I think that's the way to go to not miss these patients. 100%. Number two, step forward. Next group, which is the, I always call usual suspect number two, is our patients with valve replacements. Now, I don't care if it's mechanical, if it's bioprosthetic, if it's a tabby and someone throws it in your groin. If you're a valve replacement patient and you come in and you feel like crap or you have a fever, I'm worried about you. You have a risk of about 4% in your first year and about 1% per year afterwards. All right. So those are our two usual suspects, David, the valve replacements and IV drug use, who are the two not usual suspects? Unusual suspects. Number three, step forward. Yeah, I mean, and this group is not limited to two, but I like to think about two other groups. And these are your non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis. So the first one is morantic endocarditis, from the Greek to waste away. And these are in cancer patients. And with cancer patients, you and I think about clots and we think about pulmonary embolism but you also have to think about them clotting off their valves, especially with our adeno-CA patients. We're seeing a lot more people living longer and cancer's part. And when you see those end-of-life cancer patients, you have to also think about morantic endocarditis. Number four, step forward. 
All right, so we got two plus one. We got one more unusual suspect to discuss. Yeah, your lupus patients. Your lupus patients, we've always known about pericarditis. We've known about myocarditis, but they also get endocarditis, and it's called a Liebman Sachs endocarditis. With lupus, we've always thought about them clotting off because they have an antiphospholipid syndrome and they can get clots and miscarriages, but they also get endocarditis, which is non-bacterial. So those are my four suspects that you need to think about. And the list is not ended there, but that's a good start. And I think this really does help us to think, okay, I have a patient with a fever, can't find another source, and then they have one of these other risk factors. I've got to at least think about endocarditis, if not pursue that diagnosis doggedly. And, and I think if we pursue it more, yes, we will have a lot of workups that don't show endocarditis, but we'll also catch more of those patients. And this is a diagnosis that we don't want to miss. We don't want to send these patients home. Peripheral manifestations. David, one of the other plus ones that we think about is when we see peripheral signs of that endocarditis. So you talked about some of these lesions and physical exam findings. But the ones that I think about more are when they have infectious complications from septic emboli. So which of the plus ones would help us to go down that pathway of endocarditis is at the heart of this and everything else we're seeing is the peripheral issues? Because I've said already that fever is the predominant syndrome and symptom at 96% up to, then I look at fever plus four plus ones. And the first one I think is the most important and it captures your embolic phenomenon that you shared. And that's fever plus stroke. Remember, 65% of the embolic events of endocarditis tend to be CNS manifestations. And in 23% of the time, a stroke is the initial manifestation. So I'm not thinking that every person who has a stroke has endocarditis. But certainly if you're younger, certainly if it's definitely MCA, which is what we see in endo, and certainly if you have a fever, I think you have to think about endocarditis. Because in stroke patients with endo, it's going to be a lot more than TPA or EBT. You might need to do some soul searching and fix that problem on the valve. All right. So stroke plus fever, what are the other peripheral manifestations that we have to think about endocarditis? The next one is back pain plus fever. And, you know, we always worry about our, when we go through our red flags, back pain, we always ask about IV drug use. We always ask about fever because we are looking for a diagnosis of osteomyelitis of the spine. Osteomyelitis in the spine is a hematogenously spread infection. And when you see that, you need to think endo and look back at the heart. So when I think about someone who comes in with back pain, and I can tell you, I'm sure where you work and when I work, we see a lot of them. When you see fever plus back pain, you're going to need advanced neuroimaging like an MRI, and you're going to maybe need to backtrack and look at the heart if you see osteomyelitis in the spine. Back pain, stroke with fever, those are things to really think about this diagnosis. What are the other two? The next one I think is really important, which is fever plus CHF. And I'm not talking about the 85-year-old nursing home who also has pneumonia and also has CHF. I'm talking about in a first presentation of CHF. Remember that if you have acute aortic insufficiency with an unprepared left ventricle in the setting of endo, you're going to get CHF. And when you see a young 40-year-old or 30-year-old or 50-year-old who's maybe in one of these high-risk categories that we talked about with CHF and fever, and if they're not already on furosemide and spiritolactone, you really need to think about, is there heart failure? related to endocarditis. This is the main indication for surgery, which is presenting with 
CHF in the setting of endo. So it's really important diagnostically, but also therapeutically. Fever plus stroke, fever plus back pain, fever plus CHF. Let's get that fourth one. Yeah, the last one is rhythm disturbance. And it sounds kind of crazy and it sounds kind of sucky, which is if you have endocarditis and you know fever might be your tip-off and you see conductant changes and it might be you go into third-degree block, second-degree block, or something as simple as a first-degree block and your rhythm has changed from normal sinus to first-degree block, then that is suggestive of a perivalvular abscess, which is also really highly specific for endocarditis and a surgical need. So when I see someone who has a fever, and I'm thinking endo, and then I see their electrocardiogram changing before me, I think about an evolution of endocarditis, and that may be something more on the floor. But if you see someone who had a prior ECG, and a change, and a fever, put it on your radar. Blood cultures. So David, what you've given us is a a number of these different plus ones that make us go down that pathway of endocarditis. And we talked a little bit up front about how blood cultures are important in endocarditis, but don't really give us the information in the emergency department at the point of care of figuring out that this is endocarditis or pushing us down that pathway. But you still do see a role for blood cultures for the emergency clinician. Yeah, totally. There's really two types of endo in a sense. There's the acute and the subacute. And the acutes are going to be your right-sided lesions who come in febrile and sick and septic, and you know what they got. But there's also a subacute nature where people are just weak and malaise and have back pain, and they might have fever, and they might end up going home. And it's going to be your blood culture that makes that diagnosis. And your blood culture might not be done in the eMERGE, obviously, but you might get that report the next day if you're the person in your department who's responsible to look at the abnormal blood cultures, throat cultures, COVID tests, urine dips, STD finding. So someone who has that role is going to find out these bugs. And you kind of have to have an approach to the bugs, an approach of how to appropriately culture people if you're thinking endocarditis. These are patients who have been discharged from the hospital, discharged from the emergency department, or they were just in the outpatient setting and got blood cultures done, you're being called for those results. Are there specific bugs that when you're getting those callbacks, you're like, oh, that one's endocarditis. I got to get that guy back in. Endocarditis is a gram positive problem. And obviously, staph is the big bug and strep. But I think the key is that sometimes you get bugs that you have no idea what they are. And you need to, when you're faced with an abnormal blood culture, sometimes we just want to say, is this a contaminant? is you need to phone your friendly infectious disease colleague, or you need to Google it or wiki it, because sometimes you get a bug like strep bovis or strep gallicus or Elizabeth Kingdom meningosepticum, and you haven't heard of these. But if you just perform a simple Google wiki search, it will say, this bug is responsible for endocarditis. Despite how the patient may feel, you will need to see that patient and have them admitted and have them worked up. So you really need to know the bugs and you really need to have an approach to coag negative staph. We got to focus on that last thing that you said, the coag negative staph, because when I hear coag negative staph, I think contaminant, not something that I need to worry about. Maybe not that simple. And you're absolutely right. If you're a bedding person, 82% of the time, this is a contaminant. But you have to also realize that coag negative staph is the second most common organism responsible for endocarditis in patients with intracardiac devices. So if you have a coag negative staph, that patient might not be in front of you. It behooves you to pull up their chart 
and see if they have an intracardiac device or a valve replacement because coag negative staph plus valve replacement is not a contaminant. It's possibly endocarditis. Coag negative staph in someone who doesn't have an intracardiac device is likely to be insignificant, except there's one species of coag negative staph called staph lugidensis, or colloquially we just refer to it as slug. And it is a highly metastatic, virulent form, even in patients without intracardiac devices. So in someone who has coag negative staph, you need to know that your lab is not reporting slug species. So for me, it will say coag negative staph identified, no staph lugidensis species identified. So therefore, I will know in someone who's healthy, coag negative staph, healthy, no slug, you're probably okay. Maybe a phone call, but in all likelihood, a contaminant. And lastly, is that sometimes the bug doesn't fit the crime. And I'll give you two examples, which is if you see strep viridans, which is such a classic endocarditis in the blood work, I don't care if the diagnosis in the emergency department was pneumonia, strep viridans does not really cause pneumonia. So you should be worried. Or if you see staph aureus in the urine, and I'm not talking staph saprophyticus, I'm talking about staph aureus, that is not a typical gram-negative urinary pathogen. So it needs you to circle back in a healthy host. Why am I seeing staph in the urine? Why am I seeing strep virulence in the blood? Did I go with the momentum of another diagnosis? Have I missed endocarditis? The bacteria doesn't fit the crime. Let's transition back to the patient presenting primarily to the emergency department where we have a suspicion of endocarditis. We're going to get cultures. We want at least three cultures from different sites. And then we need imaging. Obviously, the imaging here is ultrasound. TTE is often available, even after hours sometimes. But is that enough to make the diagnosis? Yeah, it depends who you are and where you're from. And I know that the American Heart Association, their recommendation is, if at all possible, get a TEE within the first 12 hours. Now, I'm going to be very clear, which is if someone comes to see me, we're recording this on a Friday, and they come see me at 4 o'clock, there's no way I'm getting a TEE in the first 12 hours. Are you getting a TEE in 12 hours? It's going to be difficult. It's going to be difficult, if at all possible. A TTE, maybe, but a TEE, probably going to wait a couple of days. Then I like the European Society guidelines that say, look, if you are low risk for endocarditis, then a TTE with low risk, you're done. But they suggest to get a TEE if one, you have a positive TTE, two, you have a valve replacement because those people are so high risk anyways. And lastly, if your TTE is negative, but you have a high risk patient that you're worried about. So I do think there's a role for POCUS, but obviously there's a role for TTEs because TEEs are so much harder to get. If I need that TEE, I'm probably going to admit the patient. I think that's the, 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 the way that I'm going to get this done. Very rarely, maybe Tuesday afternoon at one o'clock and the cardiologist isn't doing anything else. Maybe I can get that TEE done out of the emergency department. But in general, I'm going to admit the patient. I'm going to let them handle that on the floors. What about covering the patient with antibiotics? Should I do that right away? Should I wait for the TEE results? Should I wait for the blood cultures? What are we doing here? For the most part, this is the infectious disease emergency where you really can be patients because as I've told you, three sets, three sites, culture, 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 and wait for results. You might get your gram stain early. Now, if someone is super sick and septic and right-sided and their staff and their IV drug use, 
then you really need to give an antibiotic. And if you had to pick one, it's a gram-positive problem, you're going to use vancomycin. And vancomycin is really going to sterilize the blood, and it's going to be your drug of choice for just about every category. Now, gram-negative endocarditis is something you may go a whole career never seeing. But if you want to be extra thorough, adding a good gram-negative agent like ceftriaxone or gentamicin are reasonable. So for me, I think vanco ceftriaxone, they're simple drugs. We're all familiar with both of them in dosing. They're good starting points to go with if you have to treat. Majority of the time, your role is to not screw up the cultures, to culture appropriately so that someone else on the endocarditis team can take over. And David, honestly, this is one of those places where I will even call my infectious disease doc and say, hey, I got somebody down here who I am concerned about endocarditis in. They're stable. I've got cultures off. I'm waiting to get a TEE. What do you want me to start for antibiotics? And sometimes I'll say, oh, let me come see the patient. Wait till the morning. Call me back if they spike a fever. But otherwise, they will often say, why don't we hold on antibiotics for right now until we have a little bit more information? And what you're telling me is that's reasonable in the patient who's stable. Yeah, completely. And look, when infectious disease doctors tell you to start antibiotics, you know patients really need it. And, and they're conservative and I love it. And I think this is an example. It's not that different when you have discitis or something and you just want to get that bug. So I'm very happy with this. And I think you also have to realize that depending where you work, endocarditis can be a surgical problem up to 25% of the time. So for your listeners who are not working in a shop that has, you know, cardiothoracic surgeons, I think the other point you have to make is you really want an endocarditis team. Now you mentioned infectious disease, but I think you also have to think about your cardiologists, your cardiovascular or cardiothoracic surgeons, however you call them. And this might be in a shop that you don't house all these specialties. So you have to start thinking about the processes because there are some surgical interventions and they might not be best met in your shop. Summary. The biggest point in all of this that I take away is making the diagnosis. And I think we often talk about the next steps, the management, which consults, but here we really have to focus on the front end. This is a difficult diagnosis to make. It can masquerade as many different things. And I think the plus one approach is really important. So we're going to start with any patient with fever. This has to be on our differential. We got to think about it. And then we're looking for some of those other plus ones. And you mentioned a number of them. You're going to have to go back and listen to all of those, but things that maybe aren't on our radar all the time. So obviously if you have fever and a murmur, you got to be hot on the heels of endocarditis. If you have fever and IV drug use, fever and a valve replacement, got to be thinking about that diagnosis. But then don't forget things like lupus. Lupus and a fever, you got to think about endocarditis as well. And then those peripheral complications are really important. We often focus on the peripheral piece and we forget that endocarditis could be leading to it. So fever plus a stroke, that's an embolic phenomena from that infection. Fever plus back pain. We're worried about things like discitis and epidural abscess, but we forget that the endocarditis could be the source of that. And then fever and rhythm disturbances, fever and CHF, we have to consider endocarditis on that list. Once we have a suspicion, we get lots of blood cultures. An ultrasound can be really helpful, especially because listening for a murmur can be tricky, but our bedside ultrasound can be limited. It doesn't see the left-sided valves as well. So yes, our POCUS is important. We should do it, but it's specific, not sensitive. And we still are probably going to need a TTE or even a TEE done by a cardiologist in order to clinch this diagnosis. And then remember when you're getting those callbacks on cultures, don't just blow them off, especially when you see something like coag negative staph. 
think about the fact that this could be a patient with a valve or some kind of intracardiac device, in which case we got to go down the pathway of endocarditis. In the healthy patient, if you see slug, that, that specific bacteria, we got to think about the possibility of endocarditis. And I think if we keep all of these things in mind, David, we're more likely to pick these patients up. And again, we're probably going to work up more patients for this disorder than we find, but that's okay because it can be so harmful for the patient to be missed. It's okay that we work up more of these patients, get more ultrasounds, get more diagnostic tests to make sure we don't miss too many of these. David, thanks so much for reviewing this and updating our approach to endocarditis. Thank you so much for having me. They were the usual suspects, some of them unusual. Now, everywhere I looked in this crazy mixed up town, all I saw was him, endocarditis. But better to round up a couple of innocents than let the guilty go free. Today, we're going to talk about pharmacologic options for rate control in atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, which is a very, very common scenario. And of course, we all have our favorite drugs that we reflexively reach for. But sometimes our favorite drug might not be the best drug. And sometimes our favorite drug just doesn't work coming out of the gate. So today, we are going to review what our options are. And Brian Hayes is with us again as our pharmacology expert. Hey, Brian. Hi, Gita. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? It's been a couple months since we've talked, so I'm excited to to uh, talk about AFib with you. Yeah. What's better than AFib? Uh, a regular heart rate that doesn't require let's get going. <laughs> So let's start off with a hypothetical patient who is like so many patients that we see. Okay. We've got a hypothetical patient. 60-year-old male. 60-year-old male. Has a known history of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. Known history of paroxysmal AFib. Normally lives in sinus, but he's anticoagulated comes into the ED complaining of palpitations. He's got a rate in the 150s. It's a fib, narrow complex. His vitals are rock solid. And he's not on a daily rate-lowering agent, usually. So normally, we would just start reaching for either a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker. My first question for you is, does it matter which one we reach for first? It doesn't really matter. And, and I'll tell you, I, I really used to like treating AFib. I thought it was a good challenge in the first part of my career, and I'm over it now. <laughs> Some of these patients, they're really difficult when you try the normal things and they don't work. So I'm, I'm glad we're going to talk about the complexities of this today. I don't think that there is a huge difference when you look at all the data choosing between a calcium channel blocker or a beta blocker. That being said, if you take the totality of the ED data, it seems like calcium channel blockers come out a little bit ahead. And so in general, that's the first thing that I'm going for is uh, we use diltiazem at my shop, but you could use verapamil in most cases if you have that too. And we've actually had to use it a couple of times because dilt was on shortage. So we've kind of interchanged those back and forth. But I'm generally choosing a calcium channel blocker first if they are on nothing in the outpatient setting. Are there any scenarios in which you would choose a beta blocker first or no, you just... If all other things are equal at that moment, you're going to reach for a calcium channel blocker. If all things are equal, I'm going to choose a calcium channel blocker. Now, I will tell you that we sometimes get pushed back when we admit these patients up to cardiology and it's like, you know, they switch them over to a beta blocker and why didn't you use that from the beginning? Well, we're going to get into that. I'm going to ask you about that in a second. <laughs> yeah, we, we certainly are. But the ED data is really a little bit more in favor of the calcium channel blocker. So, you know, if we're starting to think about beyond the ED, then I, I do like to kind of think about the comorbidities and think about what this patient might end up on. So for example, if they 
also have hypertension and they're not on anything really. Well, calcium channel blockers are a first-line therapy for hypertension, so I might choose that for both the AFib rate control and the hypertension. But if they have heart failure or some other reason why a beta blocker might be more the right choice, then that might swing me in favor of giving a beta blocker instead to start. What if they were already on one class or the other? Would you start with that class IV? This question comes up all the time, and and I I do agree with you 100% that if they are on one of the two agents, then my thought process is someone else thought long and hard about this. (laughs) And so even if the patient says they took that dose this morning, I'm still going ahead with an IV dose of whatever they're on at home. So whether that's metoprolol or deltiazem, I'm reaching for that first. Okay. So so let's just do a close-up on diltiazem for a second. So I usually just eyeball the patient, I look at their size, and I think about how old they are, and then I just wing a bolus dose. Is there more science to it than that? <laughs> so there is, and there isn't, I suppose. So I, my first hospital I worked at out of fellowship was uh, at Maryland, as, as most of you know, and I worked with the wonderful Dr. Amal Matu. And he was the first one that started getting me thinking about doses outside of the normal, you know, 0.25 mg per kilo dosing scheme that we generally use for deltiazem. And he said, that's, you know, that, that, that's what your drug company wants you to do. That's, that that's gives you the higher dose. <laughs> and I said, oh, that's actually a good point. But there actually are now, I think, three different studies that used a, a different dose. So I, I tend to use a different dose, which I think goes a little bit more in line with your eyeball, but it might even make it easier. And so a couple of studies looked at a fixed 10 milligram dose, and they compared that to weight-based dosing. And they found in, in both of the studies that there really wasn't that much of a difference between using the fixed dose, the 10 milligrams versus the, the higher weight-based dose. And so what I tend to do is start with 10 because you can kind of always give more, but it's tough to take it back. There was a separate study that kind of validated this a little bit, and they found that most patients need about 30 milligrams total. So you may end up needing a few doses, but you can give 10 and you know wait 10 minutes, see how they do. And some patients, you don't need any more than that first 10. Some might need a second dose and some may need a third, but that gives you kind of a slower way. You get a little less hypotension that you have to worry about, especially if they're a little bit soft to start, which I know we'll tackle in a minute. But I, I like the 10 milligram fixed dosing for most patients. Let's talk about the diltiazem drip then. Is it three strikes and you're out? Like how many diltiazem boluses or how much net diltiazem would you advise you give someone before you just throw your hands up and say, I'm just going to put them on a dilt drip? Sometimes they're not a great idea too. True. And I think we actually use them incorrectly in a lot of situations. What we're going to talk about too with dilt, it actually applies to metoprolol too. And that's what if I gave three doses of metoprolol five milligrams and it didn't work? What do I do now? Do I keep going? Do I give a different drug? So the same thing applies is if you've given a couple doses and then it's not working, the, the question is always, what do you do next? I'll tell you that I'm, I'm not a huge fan of deltiazem drips in the ED because what you're essentially doing is if, if you've failed with the bolus dosing and then you switch them to a, an infusion, a couple things. One is you're giving them a lot lower dose. So even if you're giving them 15 milligrams an hour, which is a pretty high dose, you know, that's way less than you would have been giving if you were giving boluses. And then it, if you didn't give any boluses, or you only gave one or two, it takes a while for that diltiazem drip to get up to the sort of the steady state that you want in, in the blood anyway, to give you the right effect. And we tend to treat diltiazem like it's like a norepi drip where we're titrating it every like five minutes. And that's not really how the pharmacokinetics of it work. And so 
I think that we want it to behave more like an esmolol or a norepinephrine, but it doesn't. And then we kind of get stuck. So I'm not a huge fan of the dilt drips. I'm in favor of give boluses until you get an effect. And then once you do, you can add on the oral. And hopefully by the time the IV starts to wear off, the oral has kicked in. And then hopefully you get a smoother transition. I get it. I know that doesn't work every time, but that's the general approach that I use. So if the diltiazem boluses don't seem to be working, let's say we're we're getting up there and our patient is wearing thin and <laughs> we don't really want to put them on a diltiazem drip, I guess. What do you think about switching them to a beta blocker at that point? Because I would like to know whether it's safe. Okay. I am a toxicologist by training. And so I am always thinking about the worst case scenario <laughs> when you do something <laughs> like this. And I think anecdotally, we've all either had cases or we've had an attending or, or someone else that we've worked with that told us about a case where they did this and the patient did poorly. They had symptomatic bradycardia or, or worse. And so I think we're all scared of doing this. And the reason being is that if you're combining two different AV nodal blockers, then the thought is that you're putting the patient at a more likely risk or a higher risk of heart blocker or too much AV nodal blockade. Well, I'll tell you why I started doing it, because I used to think that. And then I would find that these patients, then I admit them, and then they put them on a beta blocker. or like, And then they'll say, like, why didn't you put them on a beta blocker? And I would think, well, because I was using calcium channel blockers. And then I figured, okay, I guess that's I guess that's okay. And then when I started doing it, sometimes I would have success. Right. You're, you're absolutely right. And I think we can do this, but we need to be careful. And I think that's the bottom line. So we actually study this. We published a paper last year in AGEM, which we can link in the show notes. It's not a perfect study. It's retrospective, but it does look at, because we tend to do this a lot at, at my shop, actually. And it was when I moved from my last hospital to the one I'm at now, I was surprised at how often we did this because at my last place, we, we didn't really make you know, change from one to the other. And so I was like, wow, we do this enough where I think we have enough data. So we, we ended up with about 130 patients over the course of a couple of years where, where this happened, where we changed from one to the other, either a calcium channel blocker to beta blocker or the opposite. And we found about four or five cases out of the 130-ish that patients developed bradycardia. Like bad bradycardia? No, that's the thing is they, they didn't. No one developed heart block. I don't think you have any of them were even symptomatic. We detail that in the paper, but that's not to say that we should take this paper to say, oh, yes, we should do this all the time. Mm. It's just to say that there probably is a risk, but it may not be as big of a risk as we once thought. That's probably where I settle on the conclusion for the paper. So we do this now. We still do it. And the way that we do it is whichever one we chose, if we started with DILT or Metope, we try to wait a little while, like an hour or two, if possible, between the switches. That's just one precaution. You don't have to necessarily do that. And then I always start with a lower dose of the second agent. So let's just say we started with metoprolol. We gave 15 milligrams over the course of 30 or 60 minutes. It didn't really work. Wait an hour or so. And then I would definitely start with the 10 milligrams of DILT as opposed to a full weight-based dose. And vice versa, if we started with DILT, gave 30 or 40 milligrams and it didn't work, wait a little while, and then maybe start with like 2.5 of metope. And I, and I know you're thinking, well, that's probably not going to work, and it may not, but you're at least reducing your risk of any potential too much AV nodal blockade. So if we're using the beta blockers and we feel like we need to move to a drip, what do we need to know about presumably an esmolol drip is what we'd be using in this case? I'm glad you brought this up. So this is another option. So if I failed with deltiazem and we want to switch over, 
one option that you can do is use esmolol. It's this one does have the right kinetics for quick dosing, unlike deltiazem. And so you can give a bolus or not, and then you can titrate up over the course of 15, 20, 30 minutes. And if the patient does poorly, they get bradycardic, whatever, you can shut it off and it goes away quickly. And if not, then you can transition them onto a longer acting agent after the deltiazem is mostly worn off and like with a metoprolol. So I like the idea of an esmolol drip in these patients because the kinetics support quick on and quick off. Okay, so let's think of that same 60-year-old male patient. Okay, we've got the same hypothetical patient, 60-year-old male, AFib. But this time, let's say that he is not quite hypotensive, but the blood pressure is a little low. What things should we be thinking about that maybe we could do to ward off the bad juju and and the hypotension that might ensue? Yeah, totally. There's three to four things that I think about. I mean, some of them we've already talked about, but we, we can reiterate it here. So the first thing is to give calcium. This we have not talked about yet. And this is another thing that Amal Matu turned me on to um, back in the day uh, when I was first starting in emergency medicine. There's some older papers. Most of them are with verapamil, but they basically look at giving verapamil with or without calcium and its effect on the blood pressure in patients with AFib. And the cool thing is that when you give calcium, it doesn't affect your ability to control the heart rate, but it does seem to help a little bit with keeping the blood pressure stable. And so what I do and what we do at, at my place is we give two grams of calcium gluconate over about 10 minutes as we're kind of getting the patient situated, getting the lines in, fluids, all that stuff. And then, so if their pressure is 90, you know, we don't want to con- cardiovert them. They're talking to us, they're mentating fine, as you mentioned. And so we give calcium two grams and we can repeat it if we need to. And uh, this has some data and we can include the summary of it in the, in the show notes. I'm not going to say it's a, an end-all be-all, but it's one thing that you can try. The second thing, which we're going to talk about a little bit more in a minute, is you can try magnesium as an adjunct to your calcium channel blocker or beta blocker. We'll talk about the dosing next, but we like to do this. Knowing that giving magnesium too fast can cause vasodilation and actually lower your blood pressure more, so just be careful. You don't want to make the situation worse. The third thing is we talked about the using the fixed dose of diltiazem, the 10 milligrams. This is a perfect situation to do that. Why give a 25 or 30 milligram dose of dilt when you can maybe get the same effect with 10 and not affect the blood pressure as much? And then the fourth thing I like to think about is you mentioned it, and I'm glad you did, is esmol. Esmol might be a good thing to try in, in this case, especially if the patient's heart rate is fast enough, you know, over 150 or so, where the heart rate may actually be contributing to the low blood pressure. And if you slow that heart rate down a little bit, you'll get more filling time and bring the pressure up. Esmol is really nice, and I've seen it work really well a couple times in that kind of situation. So you mentioned mag. So I feel like this is newer on the scene in atrial fibrillation is the use of magnesium. So what is the role of magnesium? What's, what is the data behind this and how should we be dosing it? I'll start by saying that magnesium is not mentioned even once in the atrial fibrillation guidelines. So we'll, we'll start there. Okay. <laughs> that being said, there are a number of older studies and a newer one, the high-low mag study over in the last couple of years that, that have looked at AFib either as a primary rate control agent or as an adjunctive rate control agent. I'll tell you right up front also that at my shop, if you have AFib with RVR, you're basically getting mag. <laughs> like there's, there's really no two ways about it that people just, they just like it. Again, 
I feel like mag is one of those things where I'm not sure how great it works for for anything, um, but it may work a little bit for a lot of things. <laughs> and so we we use it a lot, and we use it along with our calcium channel blocker or our beta blocker. You asked me about the dosing. This is this one's a little bit more interesting, and so we tend to use two grams. That being said, this high low mag study that I talked about briefly, they used four point five versus nine grams, which is a lot. Oh my God, someone checking reflexes. I know. Uh, they didn't find much difference between those two doses. So most folks generally tend to pick the lower one, which is the, the 4.5. I will say they didn't compare it to two, which would have been nice. I wish they would have compared it to the, the dose that a lot of us use. Nine I know, grams? nine grams. So don't use nine. If anything, use four. So I use two to four is what we basically do. All right, so let's change the patient now. Okay, new patient. Let's make it a teeny tiny 85-year-old woman. Teeny tiny 85-year-old woman. From a nursing wow, home. Really tiny. And she doesn't move around a whole lot. Not moving. Not at all. And so let's talk about digoxin, because this is the scenario in which I was always taught to think about digoxin, but I feel like I used to use dig a lot more a long time ago. I don't, I don't, I get the feeling that people aren't using it as much as they used to. Like, where are we with digoxin now? According to the guidelines, which we generally follow, DIG is a second-line therapy, kind of, I don't want to say equivalent to amiodarone, but basically it's equivalent in terms of like you can pick either one of those things as a second-line option. So the way that we generally approach is calcium channel blocker or beta blocker. And, and even though this is an 85-year-old lady from a nursing home who's frail, there's still no reason you can't do the same things we do for most other patients. Maybe you choose a leave in lower dose. Maybe you start with five of diltiazem or 2.5 of metope and add from there. That's, that's no problem. But if those things aren't working, this might be a patient that you'd be a lot more reluctant to try switching from you know, the calcium channel blocker to the beta blocker. And so you might jump right to something like DIG, which is what we would do at, at my shop. Well, the reason I made her a little old lady that doesn't move around a lot was that some back, back then at some point I was taught that digoxin was better in people that weren't going to have like a high exercise demand for heart rate. Is that true? Yeah, that's true. The other point that you, I think we're talking about earlier was these patients, even if their serum creatinine comes back in the normal range, mm -hmm. they always have deep at 85 years old, there's decreased renal function yeah. sometimes significantly. And yeah. if there's any degree of, you know, dehydration over the last couple of days, or they were, you know, ill at all, or even just not drinking, then you know, their creatinine today might be 0.8 and you're like, oh, that's not so bad. But then, you know, four weeks ago, it was 0 0.4, 0 0.5 or something. Mm -hmm. And so they're not going to be clearing DIG as well. And so that's just something else to think about. It doesn't mean you, you can't give it. It just is something else to think about as you're um, considering which options to choose. And we should be, so we should note their renal function, but we should also be thinking about their other meds. That's true with ejoxin. So I don't want to get too far into the weeds here, but you do have to watch out for other drugs that are P-glycoprotein inhibitors. And I'm only going to mention two because I don't want us to remember a million drugs. If the patient is already on verapamil or amiodarone, and they may be, if, they're, if we're considering DIG or they've been on DIG, then it's possible that they could have been on these other things. Those will cause elevated levels of DIG. So you just have to watch out for those and, and not use it if they're on either of those two agents. Summary. Okay, Brian, so let's do a little recap. We talked about drugs we commonly use in narrow complex atrial fibrillation with rapid ventricular response, and I'm making 
that distinction about narrow complex because there's a different conversation we can have sometime about wide complex tachycardia. But you told us that there's evidence that in the ED, deltaism outperforms beta blockers when all other things are equal. But if a patient comes in on one agent or the other, it makes sense to start with IV dosing of that class of agent first. And the evidence suggests that it's relatively safe to switch between calcium channel blockers and beta blockers if your first choice fails, but you should tread lightly because there is still a small risk of bradycardia, so you talk to us about some cautionary things we could try. Switching agent might be preferable to putting someone on a deltaism drip because there's downsides to that, as you talked about. And esmolol drips might be preferable if you need minute-to-minute control, and if hypotension's a concern, you could think about pre-treating with calcium if you're using calcium channel blockers, using IV magnesium, maybe with a little fluid bolus if clinically appropriate, and you could think about starting with esmolol, which has a lower rate of hypotension and turns off quickly. And we talked about DIG. Digoxin remains second line. We could do loading doses in the ED in appropriate patients, but you have to pay attention to their renal function and their other meds. And it's probably something you would do in conjunction with speaking to cardiology or whoever is going to be following them as an outpatient. All right, Brian, did I get it? Outstanding. This was great. I'm glad we got to do this. And thank you, as always, for your expertise. Brian Hayes. The identification and management of acute ischemic strokes is one of the most challenging things we do in emergency medicine, but this is even harder when the stroke occurs in the posterior circulation. We got a question from a listener and seems like the perfect topic to throw over to neurocritical care specialist, Dr. Evie Marcolini. Benvenuto, Dr. Evie Marcolini. Evie, great to have you back on. Hey, it's great to be back. Of note, we did cover posterior strokes back in November of 2019, but this is a good refresher as well as some supplemental information, things that have changed and developed since then. But we're still going to start with some of the basics. Evie, the hardest part for me with posterior strokes is identification. With anterior circulation strokes, they typically have weakness and numbness, aphasia. What symptoms should make us start thinking about posterior strokes? We need to think about the circulation here. Nearly 50% of posterior circulation stroke patients present with dizziness, and 15% of them have double vision, but there's also unilateral limb weakness, dysarthria, headache, or even nausea and vomiting, and those can all throw us off because they make us think of things like food poisoning. And if you think about it, think about three different artery circulation patterns. If you think about the cerebellum, you've got the superior, anterior, inferior, posterior, inferior, cerebellar arteries. They're going to give you those cerebellar signs of vertigo, ataxia, nystagmus. But then if you go to the brainstem, you're looking at the basilar artery, the superior cerebellar artery, and even the anterior inferior cerebellar arteries. Those guys are feeding the brainstem. That's going to give you signs like limb weakness, sensory loss, cranial nerve palsies even. And then finally, the posterior cerebral artery can even go up into the cerebral cortex. And sometimes you can get some visual defects, you can get sensory deficits, even memory and neuropsych deficits. So think about the cerebellum and the brainstem, where you're going to have dizziness, double vision, even unilateral limb weakness, but nausea, vomiting, and the vestibular syndrome symptoms. 
And we can see how this is really difficult, right? Some of these symptoms are nonspecific. You know, they have nausea, vomiting, and ataxia. Maybe that's going to be a little bit easier to pick up because typically patients, when they have food poisoning, they can still walk relatively straight. So we kind of have to look and do that thorough physical examination, thorough neurologic evaluation to really see if one of these things is at play. But it is challenging. We talked about the vestibular syndromes and the HINTS exam back in April 2018. People should definitely check that segment out. When we typically see patients who were concerned for stroke, we run an NIHSS score to try and assess the stroke severity. How useful is the NIHSS when we're talking about posterior circulation strokes? Oh, it's absolutely not useful. You remember this is a tool that was developed for research, not for clinical diagnosis, and it does focus on the anterior circulation. Of the posterior circulation strokes, 25% are caused by a vertebral artery dissection. So you're going to have a patient typically who doesn't have the common risk factors of hypertension, hyperlipidemia, et cetera, and you may even have a younger patient. So we shouldn't think of the NIH stroke scale when we're thinking about a posterior circulation stroke. And I think what you said right up front was really important. This was not designed to make a diagnosis anyway, so we can't use it diagnostically. We can't even really use it to assess severity in these posterior circulation strokes. So let's get to our evaluation. Let's say that we are tipped off. We do think that this is a possibility. The first thing we're going to do is a non-con head CT. And we know in anterior circulation strokes, the non-con head CT has pretty limited usefulness. It's useful for identifying an intracranial hemorrhage. Beyond that, it doesn't give us a ton of information. Is that the same for posterior strokes or is there a different utility to that non-con head CT? So that non-con is still useful. We're just looking to rule out a bleed. And remember, the bony skull base is prominent in that CT in the posterior region, so it makes a very insensitive study when we're thinking about posterior circulation. There's a lot of artifact. So for thinking of posterior stroke, get that non-con CT, but get a CTA with it because we're going to be looking at the arteries and particular, get the great vessels because you're thinking about the vertebral arteries and you want to look for dissection. The non-con head CT is only going to be so useful. We want to add an angio if we're worried about that posterior circulation. Again, looking for things like dissection, as you mentioned. Now, there's a lot of debate. We know, we've talked about it before many times, about alteplase in the use of ischemic strokes. It is standard practice now, and let's put that debate aside. How about for posterior strokes? Does alteplase still play a role in the management of posterior circulation strokes? It's a really interesting question. So first of all, the symptoms of posterior stroke are so easy to confuse with peripheral problems that it makes it really difficult to recommend thrombolysis without discrete evidence like the CTA or even perfusion imaging to prove that there's a stroke. Secondly, we know that the NIH stroke scale is not useful. So many people will say don't thrombolyse somebody if the NIH is less than four or, or something like that. But that's clearly not useful for the posterior circulation because you'll have some symptoms with posterior strokes that do affect somebody's life outcome. If they have dizziness or ataxia, that may seem minimal. It may not even show up on the NIH stroke scale, but it can really affect somebody's life. And lastly, it's fair to say that posterior circulation strokes take longer in general to diagnose because there's a high likelihood that you're going to have a mimic and your patient's now farther out from the event. So that risk of thrombolysis causing a bleed increases. But there's a recent registry meta-analysis that they looked at 5,000 patients 
and they showed that PCS or posterior stroke patients had a lower rate of parenchymal bleed, 3.2% versus 7.9% for the anterior strokes. They also had similar functional outcomes, but a higher risk of death. And that was curious to me, but they think that the higher risk of death was because there were a higher percentage of patients who had basal or artery stroke, which really carries a high risk of mortality. You mentioned it, and I want to come back to it a little bit because that bleed is what I really worry about. We know these posterior strokes are in a small space. It's enclosed. We give them lytics, they bleed, and that's going to be a, a bad outcome. I know anyone who bleeds from lytics can be a bad outcome, but I am particularly concerned about those that bleed into their posterior fossa. It sounds like maybe my concerns aren't as justified as I thought they were. When I think of a posterior circulation bleed, something in the cerebellum, we can treat that fairly easily. And I don't mean to minimize the significance of it, but what we do is a suboccipital craniectomy. We take that portion of the skull off to allow for expansion because that's really where the morbidity comes in. You've got a bleed and a small space, not much room to expand, fairly easily treatable. And some of these bleeds actually don't end up giving a long-term outcome that's poor. Some of them will, but I'm not as worried about a bleed in the posterior fossa because I can treat that where a bleed in the cortex really can't treat that. Now, this brings us to neurointerventional therapy because I think that's where we're moving in terms of stroke management in general. And here, it sounds like it could play a role because of those delays. We know because the symptoms are a little bit vague, they're a little bit difficult to tease out, not just for us, but for the patient also, they may not present early. We may be out of the thrombolytic window, even when the patient's coming in the door. And so we have to think about, is there other things that we can offer? When we think about neurointerventional, we think about advanced imaging. And you already mentioned the CTA and the perfusion study. If I'm taking a patient to scan because I'm worried about a posterior stroke, should I just kind of routinely get the CT angio and the perfusion study looking for the penumbra and the infarcted tissue? Is that going to help to influence further management? Posterior circulation stroke is harder to find. And we do need advanced imaging to determine whether or not to thrombolyse or even to intervene with endovascular therapy. And we have to think harder about dissection, which might show up with smaller areas of stroke that precede the event. So think about a dissection in the vertebral artery, narrowing the lumen of that vert, causing minor or intermittent events, then causing a clot to form right at that narrowed lumen, which then breaks off, causing an upstream, likely basal or artery clot. That whole process of dissection and intermittent strokes or minor strokes that precede a big stroke, it's more complicated than a clot that embolizes from the cardiac valve in AFib. So we do want to see what's going on in order to risk stratify our next steps. So if you think the patient has a posterior stroke, you go for non-con head CT to rule out the intracranial hemorrhage. You're going to go ahead and get the CT angio with that. Are you also pushing to get a perfusion study at the same time? No, I'm not typically doing that. I really want to get the CTA and the CT to see what's going on. And if I do find something in the CTA, it's called neurology and called neurosurgery and let's get going and, and we'll decide whether or not the patient warrants a CT perfusion or an MR perfusion. There's so many different aspects of this question to think about and, and I want them involved in this decision-making. All right. So you get that CT, the CT angio, 
You now have the question about the perfusion study. You're getting your neurointerventionalists, your neurosurgeons involved. Is there a role or what is the role for neurointerventional therapy for posterior strokes? Because Evie, when I look at most of the literature, they don't talk about posterior circulation strokes. They're talking about anterior circulation strokes in large vessels. Is there something that we can extrapolate or is it what's being done right now? Absolutely. If you have somebody with a basilar artery stroke, especially if it's a younger person, their outcome isn't going to get any worse. So we actually extend the timeline thinking about thrombolysis with those patients up to 24 hours. And depending on access, interventional therapy will definitely be done. More aggressive with the younger patients because they've got more to lose, even with the older patients. And a lot of it depends on access and whether they can fish the wire up to that basilar clot to get it out. But I've seen some really amazing outcomes with patients who have those clots uh, retrieved. So we should be getting neurointerventional involved in all of these cases where there's CT angio findings? When I have somebody with a CT angio finding, my stroke team is already on board. If you don't have a stroke team or you are the stroke team, I'm absolutely bringing in neurosurgery to help make the decisions around further imaging and what we can do for the patient. And that last point's really important because it's possible that your neurointerventionalist might say, I can't get to that clot. There's nothing I can do about it. But we'd like to give them the option. We'd like to give them the opportunity to look at that imaging and determine whether they can do something or not instead of deciding for them. Yeah. And you know, I hate to bring in the question of med legal in this, but in today's world, we've got such access to advanced imaging and stroke and posterior stroke are becoming more on the forefront. If we don't involve them, that only puts us in a bad place. Since recording this segment, there's actually a bit of an update. An article published in the New England Journal of Medicine entitled Endovascular Therapy for Stroke Due to Basilar Artery Occlusion. This study enrolled 300 patients and basically randomized them to either endovascular therapy or standard medical care. And if they were within the thrombolytic window, they also got thrombolysis. The study found no difference between endovascular care versus non-endovascular care arms. And so it's unclear exactly how this is going to affect neurosurgeons and neurointerventionalists treatment down the line. The study called for larger studies to look for smaller benefit, but at this point, we don't really have good evidence telling us that endovascular therapy is beneficial in those with basilar artery strokes. Summary. Posterior strokes are going to be difficult to recognize because the symptoms can be vague. Sometimes it can be just nausea and vomiting, but ataxia. Sometimes you can have dysphagia. Sometimes you can have some difficulties with speech. Depending on where in that circulation the clot or the lesion is, you can really have a bunch of different symptoms. And so we have to be tuned into this and say, could this possibly be a posterior circulation stroke and do that full neuro evaluation? If you're worried about it, using things like an NIH stroke scale isn't going to be very helpful because it really isn't derived or, or useful in posterior strokes. It's more for the anterior strokes. You're going to get the patient a head CT looking for the intracranial hemorrhage, and you're going to almost automatically add an angio because vertebral artery dissections are common or you might get that angio and see that there's a clot in that basilar artery. If you see a clot in one of those vessels in the posterior circulation, you're going to want to get your neurointerventionalist involved to see if that's something that they can go after and retrieve. If they want to get different imaging or additional imaging, like a perfusion study, whether that be MR or CT, to help to guide management. And this is really, once again, like with all the other strokes, going to be a team sport. You need your neurologist. You need your neurointerventionalist to help to guide that patient's management. And this is really critically important because if you have a stroke, if you have something in that basilar artery, the outcomes are, are really terrible. 
unless we have something that we can offer them. And so getting that additional imaging, getting your team involved, that's going to be really critical in determining this patient's outcome. Evie, thanks so much for coming out and discussing this. Hopefully this clears up a little bit about how to find these strokes and then what to do with them once we do find them. Thanks for having me. Rick's Rants! Hi guys, Rick Picotta here. I've been looking forward to talking to you. There's been a lot going on, with me at least. Today, Rick is going to rant about price variability. But before he does that, a what you do matters moment. About 10 years ago, I started getting these spells of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation, and I got really, really good at treating them with uh, flecainide. I became a, an advanced flecainologist, actually, and it always works, except this past Monday. So this past Monday, we had come from New Orleans where we had one of our courses. It was 3.30 in the morning, went to bed. There was just too much adrenaline circulating around, and it was clear at that time that I had gone into atrial fibrillation. Because I didn't want to get to the hospital, and then because I always am able to convert it, I took six or seven flecainide, which is, if you want to see a really weird-looking EKG, take a look at that baby. Well, in any case, my heart regularized at 100. I knew it wasn't sinus, and so I went into the hospital. I was not thrilled by going into the hospital. I mean, you, you know, that's not where we come from. We come from not being a patient, not being dependent kind of thing. In any case, the hospital is six minutes from my house. I'm a member of their uh, foundation board. The people had taken the board review course and, and the boot camp courses and the like. So I think everybody kind of basically knew that I was there. And they took extraordinarily good care of me. I was just so impressed by the speed by which things done, the competence, the uh, aura of caring that it was exhibited by everybody, the text, the EMT people. It didn't matter. Uh, Everybody was nice. Everybody was very professional. And it was like, wow, I wasn't exactly expecting that. I want to thank the, Dr. Grace Ting and Dr. No for taking care of me and rendering such special, special care. I felt safe in their hands. In any case, got admitted to the floor overnight for observation. During the night, I converted and I avoided my transesophageal uh, echocardiogram and my defibrillation. I, I got away with that. So I went home with the feeling that it wasn't just in the ER. It was in the cardiac ward as well. The nurses and the techs, everybody was just so kind. And I think one of the points I want to make is when you are in a kind of vulnerable position as a patient, these acts of kindness are magnified in terms of what they mean for you. So it's the gentle hand on the shoulder, but comforting kind of thing means so much to patients who are scared, in pain, any other kind of, you know, stressful kind of setting. And I left there feeling that I was very proud to be associated with that hospital. Now, I'm sure other patients don't necessarily have the same experience that I did, but it was for me, it was like I had to send a note to the uh, CEO about it. What Rick has just shared is absolute truth among those of us who have been patients or have had family members who are patients. We know that these little niceties, these little acts of kindness really do matter. And what we do really matters. All right, so let's get back to the ranting part of Rick's piece, which is about crazy ER charges and price variability. No actual solutions, a lot of musings and thoughts. Here we go. It's a rant! 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 It's a rant. 
I am interested in hospital bills because I, I think that they're such a mess, such a mess. And there's nobody really interested in fixing it either. So let me give you some examples. There was a woman by the name of Sarah Cliff, K-L-I-F-F. I have been uh, tracking her for a couple of years. She wrote for a publication called Vox, and her style was to focus on ER bills and try to understand why they were what they were and to expose the soft underbelly of finances from the emergency medicine point of view. Anyway, I think one of her last stories uh, for Vox was a story that basically indicated that San Francisco General Hospital, which is the only trauma center in uh, San Francisco, so everybody goes there, is out of network to every insurance company. They took nobody's insurance, none, zero, in terms of a negotiated rate. So what happened is, is that people who have relatively minor injuries, basically they trigger the, the button that says trauma center activation, which opens the cash register and $20,000 pours in. So they basically, their insurance companies of the patients in the trauma center would pay what they thought was fair, and then the patient would get the rest of the bill. Well, what they thought was fair, they would pay six, $8,000 for, you know, a really kind of nothing visit. And then the patients were left with the rest. And these were big numbers. So here we have insured patients who basically come away with huge bills from this trauma center. So that ended basically because the Board of Supervisors in, in San Francisco got wind of this. They shut it down. They said, we cannot do that anymore. I, I don't know why it took anybody so long to find this out. But anyway, that was Sarah Cliff's claim to fame a couple of years ago. I found out that she now writes for the New York Times. And she did a paper, an article, August 22nd, 2021, that looked at the variability that occurs when hospitals negotiate with insurance companies what they're going to accept or pay each other. And the fact that it is extraordinarily inconsistent one carrier to the other. And that if you let one carrier see what you've contracted with another, they're going to say, hey, your rate for this is better. I want that rate. So it's really kind of hush-hush kind of thing, these numbers. In her research, there are some examples here. Let me just get to her. So a pregnancy test, the cash price of her pregnancy test was $10. The price to Blue Cross PPO patients in New Jersey for a pregnancy test the agreed-upon price is $93, <laughs> 99, ninefold. So we're not talking about, you know, 50% more, 25 It's ninefold. MRI cost at Aurora St. Luke's Hospital in Milwaukee, $1,093 if you had a United HMO plan, United HMO, versus $4,029 for the United PPO. Same insurance, HMO, PPO, $1,000 versus $4,000. Like how? I need somebody to help me with this. I don't understand it. You know, if you got a $1,000 colonoscopy, I would be a little concerned because maybe it's only going to be eight or nine inches. You know, I think there's a general rule that you get what you pay for. So if you want to go all the way around, it's going to be 4000 bucks. Knee MRI at Baptist Memorial in Memphis. Uh, knee MRI, 210 bucks. One insurance company is getting it for 200 Another is paying $2,800. Massachusetts General Hospital, a um, knee MRI Starts out at $830, $830, four times more than the Baptist Memorial Hospital. You could take a, a jet, private jet, to fly down to Baptist and get your thing done and have change left over. Here's, here's one. Erlanger Health in Tennessee. Flu shot, $54 versus $201 for the same shot. There were lots and lots of examples. This is just 
a quagmire. Her job is to show the, the underbelly of the medical quote-unquote system that we have. And you, can you imagine trying to fix this? It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. One of the things that uh, has made this kind of apparent is the requirement that hospitals have their charge master available for normal people. So uh, they don't like that at all because showing the charge master shows what you've negotiated with at various insurance companies. So when one sees the other, they said, hey, we want a better deal than uh, you gave us. So the charge master thing is an issue. Most of the hospitals, I think, are just not doing it. There's very little consequence negative if you don't. And so they're just dragging their feet on this. There's a lot of, a lot of interesting stuff to be seen in their, in their charge masters. You know, fortunately, these bills really don't matter to me because I have a thing called socialized medicine, Medicare. I have a supplement. It works great. I don't think I paid any money except what comes from the Medicare and the supplement. I think the problem with Medicare is it just pays bills. There's no really good effort to kind of narrow variability, et cetera, evidence-based medicine. They just pay bills. So this gets me back to the concept that Medicare and Medicaid do not cover the cost of admitting their patients to the hospital. All the administrators say, you know, we can't live on Medicare or Medicaid kind of thing. You would think that they could because the government must have set the rates in some way so that they could live on it, but as they say, no. So what happens then is private insurance companies pay a multiple of what Medicare would ask, and that must be the money to help the hospital deal with the lack of funds for Medicare and Medicaid. So private insurance companies, because of the rates that they're paying hospitals, are floating Medicare and Medicaid. And I don't think, it, you know, that doesn't sound right. I mean, this is, these are private companies. It's not their job to cover for the lack of payment for Medicare or Medicaid. But anyway, that's uh, one of the issues that comes up. So I need somebody to tell me that's not true, that private uh, insurance companies are, are not underwriting Medicare or Medicaid. It's everything I see says they are. You know, the other thing is, is that when you go to hospital, there's a whole bunch of things to sign. Nobody reads anything. But I got the sense of the power of your signature because if I just write something on a piece of paper or a computer or form, I can order a $5,000 test on somebody or an expensive thrombolytic or something like that. And this little signature gives me the right to do that in the, in the setting of my license to practice medicine in California. And all the time that we're doing that, we're trying to help the patient and do the best we can for them. But soon as you put that signature down, out comes the quagmire of all of the prices and all of the discrepancies and all of the unfairnesses. And here's the issue that bothers me. A lot of these bills that get sent out are going to be bills that patients have to pay their own way, thousands of dollars. So you try to help them out, but look, they're, they're suffering because this bill is just not reasonable or they have no way to pay it. So I feel kind of bad about that because we know that there's a lot of people who are getting hospital bills that they just cannot afford to pay. And we triggered it all. We didn't want to harm anybody, but we triggered it all. But it's not my fault, but I would like to do something and I can't do a damn thing to affect hospital bills or this ridiculous insurance system that we have. We can't do a thing about it except try to do as best as I can on the clinical side. All right, that's it.
send me an email if you want. I'd be happy to correspond with you, wrbucata at gmail.com. Thanks for listening and bye for now. Oh, hey, wait, 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 wait. I got one thing to say. I haven't told you the name of the hospital. I said such nice things about it. I just can't walk away and say nothing. So that was Arcadia Methodist Hospital in Arcadia, California. And again, Dr. Ting and Dr. No, thanks so much for helping me out. Bye-bye. Rick's compliments. Gita Penza. Gita Penza. Hi, Don. Thanks so much for coming on to talk to us about take-home naloxone and what emergency departments and hospitals could be doing better in terms of impacting opioid overdose death. That's Gita Pensa, a voice that many of you are becoming more familiar with. And she is here with Don Stater, emergency physician and addiction medicine specialist, also the chair of the ASEP pain and addiction section. And he's part of the Colorado Naloxone Project, which works to identify patients at risk of opiate harm and figure out ways to send them home with naloxone to help to save some of those patients' lives. And what they're working on is developing a system that they can bring outside of Colorado around the country. I am completely on board with everything that the Naloxone Project is doing, but I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a little bit, and just we're just going to pretend I'm not, okay? And so I'm going to give you some of the, the arguments, the pushback, and I want to see what you say in terms of why we should be doing this, okay? Sounds good. It's probably nothing that I've not heard before. I bet. All right. So first, what is the evidence that my sending someone home with naloxone is going to change anything? I mean, if they if they overdose, they're not going to be able to give themselves naloxone. And so you have to suppose that they're going to teach their friends and their family about it first. And I have my doubts that that would happen. So is this just one more performative mandate that does not really add to lives saved, like universal suicide screening, perhaps? Oh man, that's that's a really loaded question, but I'm going to push back on several aspects of that. First, this is not a performative mandate. This is not mandated by JCO, etc. This should really be on us. We want to do what's right and what's best for our patients and prevent our patients from dying. And then I'd say in terms of the evidence, the evidence is really I say scattered, but almost all of it says that take-home naloxone makes a significant difference in saving lives. And there's, there's studies that show that there's as much of a 46% decrease on the high end of overdose prevention with take-home naloxone. But most of the studies of high-risk populations, like we see in the emergency department, kind of fall in a 20 to 30% range of a decrease of overdose death. Okay. All right. You got that one. Let's see. Well, what about cost? We'll wind up sending home a lot of naloxone that's never going to get used. What about cost? You know, and I've done a look at the medical literature for this. Every single study that I can find says that take-home naloxone is cost-effective, that it saves money when it looks at saving the lives of 20, 30, and 40-year-olds, which is really the patient population that struggles most with opioid use disorder. And I'd say that, you know, on the previous question, I should mention that naloxone isn't all about saving lives of the patient who has the use disorder who you're prescribing it to or dispensing naloxone to. That patient, oftentimes, if they are an active drug user, will be around others who are at risk for overdose. And while they might not administer naloxone to themselves, can administer it to a friend or, or someone else who they see who has overdosed. And naloxone doesn't only save lives, but it's one of the most powerful messages that we can send to patients that their lives matter. And it's been shown that when you give someone naloxone and you do adequate overdose training, 
that often that patient will decrease their dangerous use in illicit drug using populations. There's around 50% decrease in drug use in chronic pain populations. There's around a 36% decrease in dangerous use of their prescribed opioids. Around 25% of people who you give a naloxone kit to and give training to will go out and train a family member or a friend. And there's an interesting study from California that says around 27% of people who were actually given a take-home naloxone kit entered treatment within six months. So it's not that this is a magic bullet, but it does all the right things. It encourages good behavior. It's a tool that could potentially save a life. And in terms of cost effectiveness, this is one of the most cost effective things we can do to address overdose in our country. That's all amazing. I cut. Cut. Wait, okay, hang on. I gotta get back into roll. Remember, you're an empathetic yet skeptical emergency medicine doc. So while you may agree on the efficacy of naloxone, you're worried about wasting resources, okay? Let's try it again. Pensa naloxone, take two, market. And action. Okay. Let's see this. If I if I can just give them a prescription, then what's the difference? Why does it matter if I physically hand them? the naloxone. Because if they're motivated, they're going to get it from the pharmacy. And if they're not motivated, then you know maybe it doesn't make a difference anyway. Oh, and here's one of the biggest barriers that I think all of us have to realize. When you prescribe, when you give patients a paper script or an electronic script, that is a pretty useless intervention. And I'll point to data. There's two studies out there, one in our own literature and one in addiction, that show that the fill rate for prescribed naloxone from the emergency department after someone has actually overdosed is less than 2%. In one study, it's 1.6%. In the other study, it's less than 1% at one year. So prescribing naloxone in terms of writing a paper script, while I encourage it, it's, much, it's better than nothing, but it's not significantly better than nothing. So we really have to go where the evidence is pointing and say, listen, patients who have an opioid use disorder do not want to out themselves and subject themselves to the stigma of going to a pharmacy and filling a prescription for naloxone. And additionally, there's barriers to cost, there's barriers to time. It's just often for patients with OUD and chronic pain, something they're not going to do. Just give it to them. And we have to create systems that make it easy for us to do the right thing and for the patients to be as safe as possible. And that's what we're building with the Colorado Naloxone Project. We're building a system where we can simply hand naloxone to patients at risk for overdose. And I'll tell you what the fill rate is with that. The fill rate is 100%. So if we go from less than 2% to 100%, that's a 98% increase in the efficacy of our intervention. This is common sense stuff that we should all be doing. Don, you're totally wearing me down. <laughs> okay, let me think what else I've got. Cut. So you agree with the efficacy and you see the logic behind sending a kit home with the patients, but you're still protective of the emergency department. You know, make me see why you care about your colleagues, okay? Pensonaloxone, take three, market. And action. Okay, I get that. The maybe stigma keeps, keeps patients from going to the pharmacy to get that prescription. I get that. But why, why the emergency department? Why can't we distribute naloxone through other outpatient programs that support this population, like syringe exchanges. Like why, you know, the emergency department is, there, there is so much burden on us already. Like why add to our burden? I'd say that this isn't adding to our burden, it's helping us relieve our burden. Our burden is to take the best care of patients that we possibly can. And right now we've been doing such an inadequate job for the patients with OUD, for chronic pain, for acute pain, 
who are at risk of overdose, that it's terrible. So this actually puts a viable tool in our tool belt that allows us to take better care of patients. This really makes us feel good about what we do every single day. And it doesn't take that much time. And why us? It's because these are our patients. No one sees the IV drug users, the overdose victims, the chronic pain patients who have overdosed or who are using dangerously more than we do in the emergency department. This is our patient population. These are our people. And there's an interesting study, if you want me to put some numbers behind it, that says that of patients who overdose, that over 50% of them, and I'm talking patients who overdose and die, over 50% of them are seen in the emergency department in the prior three months. We have an opportunity to intervene on over 50% of overdose deaths. If we as a nation, as a community, as healthcare providers want to actually make a dent in the soaring overdose numbers, we have to take those shots. We can't let 50% of those patients walk through our doors without us actually doing something meaningful to intervene and decrease their, their chance of dying. All right. I'm, if my, my devil's advocate self has officially convinced. Okay, that's a wrap. <laughs> but but I'm, do you, I mean, I bet you have more data and more great reasons up your sleeve. So what else should we know? Tell me. I'm going to start with just my own experience and the experience of my emergency department that's been doing this for two years. This is not a heavy lift for us to do. This is, in fact, one of the most common sense, lowest lifts, easiest, lowest hanging fruit for us to take advantage of when it comes to addressing our nation's overdose epidemic. We've done it in our emergency department, and now here in Colorado, after three months of the Colorado Naloxone Project, over 50% of emergency departments are committed to dispensing naloxone, and we will not stop until 100% of our emergency departments are doing it. If I can then kind of piggyback from my personal experience to kind of the way we create systematic change and what I hope that listeners of MRAP, regulators, leaders in emergency department will do is adopt these, this five-step plan that we've created as part of the Colorado Naloxone Project. One. We believe, one, that patients with opioid use disorder, chronic pain, and acute pain who are at risk for overdose matter. And their lives matter enough that we have to make concrete steps to assure their safety and to distribute naloxone to save lives. Two, clinicians and nurses, and we're talking about your listeners, every emergency clinician in the country needs to learn how to identify a patient at risk for overdose and commit to doing the common sense thing of placing naloxone in the patient's hands before they leave the hospital or the ED. Three, is we have to work with our hospitals and emergency departments to commit to stocking and dispensing naloxone to at-risk patients. Four. The heaviest lift is number four. We have to get payers and regulators to reimburse hospitals for dispensing naloxone and cover the cost of the medication so there's no negative incentive for hospitals to not provide this service. Five. And lastly, is the fifth one is the system. This is a system that would be easy to build, easy to create, and would tangibly save lives. And with over 90,000 Americans dying every year from overdose, the need for a program like this and for common sense solutions like this could not be higher. And we hope that your listeners and the entire emergency medicine community will join us and get behind these principles and commit to making this a standard of care across our practices. Summary. 
Don, why do you think it's taken us this long to get to this common sense but light bulb moment that we should be sending people home with naloxone? If, we, if we've known how effective naloxone is for decades, why are we only now starting to do this? I'll give you a one-word answer. The answer is stigma. There's been a tremendous stigma for opioid use disorder. And that's been shown even in our own literature, where you ask providers about whether they think they think we should be sending patients home with naloxone or prescribing naloxone. And people come up with excuses, just like devil's advocate Gita did, about why we shouldn't do this. And one of my favorite definitions of stigma is kind of, stigma is whatever rationalization that you make to not do the right thing. So it's not that you're doing active harm to people, but you're not actually doing what you know in your heart, in your mind, and in the science is justified and good. So we know, there's enough evidence now, we know take-home naloxone saves lives. It's cost-effective. It encourages recovery and entering into treatment. So what's holding you back? What's holding you back is stigma. The thought that those patients won't, won't make a change. The thought that they're not worth the money that it would take to send people home with naloxone. The, the hopelessness that we've all learned that this is an untreatable disease. The irony being, that opioid use disorders are extremely, extremely treatable. And we can make a tremendous difference in those patients' lives if we only have the temerity to do things differently and to follow the science. Well, thank you so much for that. A quick question, though, about um, your project. If someone wished to replicate what you're doing in Colorado in their own state, what kind of advice would you give them? The first advice I'd say, call me or email me, because we want to share this with other states, other places of the country. And what we've done here in Colorado is we've passed common sense legislation that mandates payers compensate hospitals for naloxone given out. And we think we have a model that can be really brought to everyone, to every state. And we hope to also start lobbying through ASAP and other partners for federal changes that would make this easy and replicable in every corner of the country. Thank you so much for coming on to talk to us about this today and for all you're doing. Oh, thank you for the opportunity. Hope that it resonates with people. And please, I'm very sincere. If you're curious about the project or just want to talk drugs, reach out to me. I'm always happy to talk with fellow ER docs. A lot of people say, go ahead and reach out to me anytime. But trust me, Don means it. And we will include all of his contact information in the show notes in case you want to pick his brain about how to get this done. Welcome, everybody, to ASAP Now and MRAP's World Travelers. That's the voice of Cedric Dark, emergency physician at Baylor College of Medicine in Houston. And you will remember that back in June and July of last year, Cedric and I discussed how our health system works in the U.S. in comparison to some of the other models that are out there. One of the things that Cedric thought was really important is for us to explore how those other health systems work in different countries. And so that's what this series is. This is the World Traveler series where we are going to tour the globe and talk to emergency physicians who have both worked in the U.S. and then have worked in another country and another system to compare and contrast those systems and how they work. Welcome to ASEP Now and MRAP's World Travels. What we're going to talk about today is an extension of what we talked about before on MRAP, where we are looking at international healthcare systems. 
But what we're actually going to do now is to dig a little bit deeper into some specific healthcare systems, and I'm going to do it with some guests on the program. We're going to talk about one of the prototypes of healthcare. One's called the National Health System. You can think about it in terms of the United Kingdom and what they have going on, what they call their own NHS National Health System, where essentially the hospitals and the doctors are more or less employees of the their you know government their their federal government here in the United States we have something very similar to that like the veterans affairs where essentially if you work for the VA whether you're employed directly by the feds or if your group is under contract with them you're essentially acting as an agent of the federal government delivering care to veterans the hospitals the clinics they're all owned by the government that sort of thing there's several countries that do this Spain and Italy are are some prime examples but we're going to look into one that fits slightly into that box. None of, none of these countries fit perfectly into these boxes that are made, but New Zealand is one of these other countries that is similar to this type of system. And if you want to learn more about it, I would encourage you to go to the Commonwealth Fund, read their international healthcare system profiles. It's something that I look at that provides a ton of information. And we'll start today talking about New Zealand. So New Zealand is a publicly funded, regionally administered system administered through 20 different regional authorities. It started in 1938 with their Social Security Act. Kind of sounds similar to we had our Social Security Act somewhere around the 1930s, 1940s. It includes benefits like inpatient care, outpatient care, mental health, long-term care, prescription drugs, maternity, physical therapy, medical equipment, home health, hospice, all these different things. It doesn't include things like adult dental care, eye care, orthodontics, things that we're still missing in our Medicare program here in the U.S., and it's financed mostly by taxes. Now, the national government sets an annual budget. It sets a benefits package. Patients do have some co-pays, which seem to be fairly small, maybe 10 to $34 on average for prescription drugs. The copay is about $3.40 from what I've read. And no deductibles, which sounds pretty cool compared to what we have now. A lot of healthcare plans in the U.S. are high deductible health plans. About a third of the population has supplemental private coverage. And they do all of this for only 9% of GDP, which is about half of what we spend in the U.S. on our healthcare system in terms of our percentage of GDP. Your general practitioners are usually independent and self-employed. Right, which is, which is a little bit different from what we're thinking of when we're talking a national health service, a true national health service, but half their income comes from capitated government payments. So you get paid by the patients that sign up to see you. The rest of it comes from co-pays or from the Accident Compensation Corporation. And then specialists tend to be salaried, paid by district health boards. You know, if you're coming from, from where I am down in Texas to going to New Zealand, it'd be a little bit of a pay cut, I guess, for ER doc. It says the average salary here for all specialties is about 155000 With that, let me introduce our guest discussant for today, Ryan Radecki. He is one of our ASAP Now columnists. He writes pearls from the medical literature. And right now he's practicing in New Zealand. Like me, he used to practice in Houston. And Dr. Radecki, welcome to the program. It's lovely to be here. Thanks for having me. Let's get into the heart of this. Let's get into the medicine and see what's different in terms of practice of emergency medicine between these two locations. You know, some of the challenges that we see in the United States, right, getting follow-up care for your patients or making sure they can get access to medications or access to specialists, do you see that issue on the ground there in New Zealand? 
Like everything in medicine, it depends. Access to primary care has traditionally been something that's one of New Zealand's strengths. It's been very easy to get access to primary care for either routine checkups or urgent visits or hospital follow-up. It's a little more challenging just as of late, I think, because the borders have been closed and it's been a little bit harder to access some of the specialist and medical resources that New Zealand depends upon from overseas. Interestingly, about 20 to 30% of their physician workforce is born overseas. So they really do depend on foreign trained doctors to sort of as the foundation of their healthcare system. And over the last, uh, last you know, little bit of while, it's been a little bit more difficult to access GPs in follow-up. But that being said, no, it's not the same sort of issue that you have in the United States by any stretch of the imagination where it might be weeks to see your GP. We complain if the people complain if it's been a few days to come back in and see their GP here. But usually routine follow-up is not thought to be a major problem historically in New Zealand. Access to medications, I mean, they have all the same medications that we have. As far as the, the basic, you have an ACE inhibitor, you have all the different antihypertensives, you have the sort of the basic uh, medications to control diabetes. There's not really any issue with getting access to the, the critical medications to treat people for either chronic or acute conditions. And then access to specialists is, it's, at least in the hospital setting, in the acute care setting, there's absolutely no trouble getting access to a specialist to perform you know, uh, whatever emergency surgery or acute intervention, interventional radiology, whatever it ends up needing at this particular tertiary hospital that I work at, no trouble whatsoever. Out in the community, you know, you maybe there's like one dermatologist, you know, for the entire South Island. So if you're trying to see a specialist in the publicly funded healthcare system for something like dermatology, you can end up with some pretty long waits. But again, it's all triage based on the acuity of your condition. So people who have acute needs do get to see their specialists when they need to see their specialists. Well, I guess in consideration of that, both you and I work at a public hospital system in Houston. If you're trying to consider how hard it is to see the dermatologist in New Zealand versus the public hospital system in the United States, is it harder, easier, about the same? I'd probably say it's very similar. And the, the difference being that most people in the United States don't access the public healthcare system for their healthcare needs. But also, like uh, I don't know if you mentioned this in the introduction, that about a, about a third of the people in New Zealand also buy a private healthcare insurance policy that allows them more rapid access to decreased wait times on some of their elective procedures. All right. And, and speaking of the, the wait times on elective procedures, how would you say they typically compare compared to what you would see in the United States? Again, uh, I think it all depends. You know, hip replacements, knee replacements, these things take time, for sure. Uh, elective cholecystectomies, these things take time. But certainly, it's nothing like the private system in the United States, where if you have a little bit of, a, you know, a biliary colic, and you go to the emergency department, you might have your gallbladder taken out that day. Here, even cholecystitis uh, might be managed conservatively with antibiotics and a referral for outpatient cholecystectomy at a later date. So there's a, a different approach to things, which some people might call a delay in care. Whereas at least the perspective here might be that it's a higher value care as opposed to immediately jumping to a surgical intervention that they give it some time and see if there's a, you know, a, a chance for a conservative treatment to be a, just as successful. You had mentioned medications a little bit before. You know, there's ACE inhibitors and all these other types of classes of medicines for a person with, with an issue. Let's say someone's trying to get on a new antihypertensive. You know, there, there might be four or five different antihypertensives or ACE inhibitors even that you could get on here in the United States. And if you typically have private insurance, you're more or less going to be able to get onto that medication. Unless, of course, there's some kind of preauthorization issue that your insurance company provides. So how does this work 
in New Zealand, do they have like every single medication available? Is it like a more restricted like national formulary? And we talked about how expensive they were. They sound fairly cheap for the copays. Would you say medications are also cheap over there too? When you write somebody a prescription, the copay is is quite small. And then if you have a, a specific sort of like community services card, like if you're in sort of the lower socioeconomic income bracket, then obviously uh, there's a, it's even, even closer to free. It's all set uh, by the New Zealand formulary, what the public system covers. So there is a limited list of things that you can prescribe. But then again, you don't need access to every different iteration of ACE inhibitor. The country's only 5 million people. So for some of these more rare drugs, like say, uh, you know, like some of the drugs for cystic fibrosis or some of the you know, boutique cancer drugs that are coming onto the market, they have a very in, sort of intensive and controversial process about going through and trying to decide which things they're going to put on formulary, trying to get the best value out of, you know, the limited number of healthcare dollars that they can spend based on their tax base and try and go through and figure out which things will be covered by the public system. Some of the things make sense, like I talked about the boutique cancer drugs, but some of the things are a little bit more controversial, like the uh, like these SLG2 uh, inhibitors for diabetes, which are fairly common and pervasive in the United States. These are just co- sort of getting approved in New Zealand right now through sort of a cost-benefit sort of discussion, because they do end up on the sort of the more expensive side of things, but they also have you know, well-demonstrated cardiac benefits. So I think that this is one of the things that are starting to roll out for a limited population. So it's, it's not exactly the same as the United States, and there's certainly a delay in getting things approved and getting the sort of the financial backing for certain things. And it's a controversial you know, government bureaucracy that does it. But uh, for the most part, for, you know, like 99% of the things that you and I would see on a regular basis, it's there. So as an ER doctor, you feel like there's any medication you wish you had over there that you don't have here? Please tell me they have ketamine. They got to have that one. <laughs> They have ketamine, but they don't have Ketorolac. <laughs> How dare you make fun of me? You will feel the wrath of Ketorolac. They do rectal diclofenac as their alternative for IM Ketorolac. Whatever. For uh, renal colic. They have a solution for everything. It's just not the solution that you're used to. Prochlorperazine is a little bit different. They use the buccal formulation and they use uh, chlorpromazine as their sort of intravenous antidopaminergic uh, migraine medication. It's just, everything's just a little bit different. And of course, they call acetaminophen paracetamol, and epinephrine is adrenaline, and you know, some things just have different names. But uh, certainly in the acute care setting, all the same things that you would desperately need in the emergency room are, are there. One thing that we worry about a lot over here in the U.S. is people, let's say, cycle on and off insurance. They might lose their insurance altogether, which means they lose access to their doctors, access to their medicines, and maybe even surgery. So have you seen this happening where you are in New Zealand, or is that something that's unique to the United States? That's just something that's unique to the United States. People are universally covered. There's always a GP, there's always a clinic, there's always access to specialists regardless. In the rarest of cases, people might be followed by a private specialist for a little while and then run out of funds to pay their private specialist, but they have the backstop of the public system in case they have to continue their care for, you know, whatever it is you know, cancer treatment or some sort of surgical treatment that that care for is the specialists are all there in the public system. It's just that some people access the private system for maybe a little bit decreased weight or a little bit more of a concierge or boutique sort of a uh, customer experience. It's helpful to know the overall care that is provided. Sometimes it helps though to also know the specific care. If you are a patient yourself, what do you expect? So let's hear what Ryan's experience so far has been with that system. Yeah, so we've accessed the uh, outpatient GP system just for, you know, before school checks for our kids. We've got, uh, so actually there's a dental service that comes around to all the schools and does dental checks on all the kids. 
and refers anybody for a specific dental follow-up if they need additional cleaning or treatments. And that's all free and publicly funded as well. And then you know, my family members who have tried to access the system have had no trouble getting appointments and no trouble getting the you know, procedures and tests that they needed. And we've had our results in a timely fashion. So we haven't run up against any delays accessing through our healthcare through the public system. But I'm sure that there are other people who could tell a different story and have different perspectives who have been here longer. Well, what do you think is one of the greatest lessons that you've learned that might inform people back home, listeners, or maybe even policymakers, how we could restructure our healthcare system in the United States? What have you learned over there that might benefit people over here? Well, I think that the most obvious sort of at face value endorsement of these universal healthcare publicly funded systems is that no one's itching to go back to the United States model. Uh, people are you know, advocating to move the United States to one of these publicly funded models, but nobody is saying, let's tear out our universal health care you know, that makes sure that everybody has health care all the way down to pervasive equity throughout the system as best as we can apply it. Nobody's saying, let's tear that up and, you know, and leave, leave some of our population uncovered and switch to the United States model. That's horrified by what they see in the United States over here. It just it blows their mind that we can't do something. Cannot somehow all get together and fix the system. As wealthy as a nation we are, that there are so many people who go without medical care. The thought of medical bankruptcy, <laughs> that you might run out of money, that you might lose your health insurance because you've lost your job, is just it's just insane to them. That people who are effectively in their greatest hour of need, whose families are suffering the most have to have that suffering compounded by the issues with our healthcare system. But you, you speak to, I think, a lot of sort of the ethical principles that we'll most likely identify in some of these other countries as we go around the world and, and talk about their systems that they focus on, number one, universality. After that, a lot of it is about equity. And then once you, once you get past those basic principles, after that, it's like, how do you pay for it? what can you get funded, you know, what you can do. And maybe that means you have to wait a little bit longer than you might if you've got private insurance and your gallbladder has a few gallstones in it, but otherwise isn't, you know, you're not septic from it. So yeah, it's, 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 a, it's a theme that, you know, in, in my studies is something that I've seen. And it's something that I'm, I'm glad you sort of mentioned that as well, that sort of the cultural approach to healthcare in New Zealand seems to be a bit different than the cultural approach in the United States. It may also be that some of these countries are a lot smaller, and so they feel a lot more cohesion and sort of, uh, you know, the way that New Zealand talks about themselves is that team of 5 million sort of approaching COVID and that we're all going together in a national lockdown because there's been a couple cases in one city on a different island, you know, on the North Island. There's a whole sort of team-based aspect, and they realize that the team is stronger, is only, a, you know, to some extent, as strong as your weakest link. And if you're keeping as much of your population as healthy as possible, then those people are going to be far more likely to be contributors to your society and strengthen your country. Whereas, you know, I think, I don't know, the, the, sort of the culture is just a little bit different in the United States about, you know, making, you know, raising the floor raises the, you know, raises things for everybody. New Zealand summary. All right. Well, is there anything else you want to tell our listeners what they could learn about New Zealand should they come down and join you and work down there? Is it fun? It's a great place to work. I can't, I can't lie about it. That's probably the most fun I've had practicing medicine in a long time. And I think that uh, it's certainly it's a lot more fun than been practicing medicine in the United States over this past year. 
but really you should just come visit once the borders are open in 2022 uh, it's just it's just lovely well I, I would certainly love to get down there myself and thanks for the invitation i get to crash at your place hopefully have a place to stay we've got a guest bedroom excellent christchurch all right well that's going to be it for today's episode of asap now's world travelers edition with mrap with our visit to new zealand with our guide dr ryan radecki and of course this is just part one of this series we're going to be moving through some other systems as well Next, we're going to be down in Australia. We will have a guest who has both practiced in the U.S. and has practiced in Australia to give us a perspective on that system. Can't wait to hear more from Cedric on this topic. And again, thanks to Ryan for chipping in here. If I hear a harsh, systolic, crescendo murmur radiates the carotids, I'm thinking aortic stenosis. It's a pretty classic murmur. But what happens when a patient with aortic stenosis presents with hypotension or bradycardia or even tachycardia? These patients have a very delicate physiology. And unfortunately, there's a couple ways that we can make them worse in the ED. I'm here with Mike Gottlieb from Rush Medical Center, and we're going to be talking about some points on aortic stenosis that might change your practice. Mike, before we get into all these great pearls, where do we most commonly see aortic stenosis? Risk factors. The biggest risk factor is age. Up to 10% of patients over the age of 80 have aortic stenosis. So if you imagine you're on shift and you see 10 patients over the age of 80, not that uncommon, at least one of them probably has aortic stenosis. There's a few other risk factors like being male, having hyperlipidemia, inflammatory disorders like lupus or rheumatoid arthritis. And there's also rheumatic valvular disease, but that's pretty uncommon overall. There's one other one to be aware of, and that's in kids. Specifically, there's a congenital unicuspid aortic valve, which can cause aortic stenosis as one of the pediatric congenital heart diseases. I work in essentially a geriatric center of excellence, so I know I'm going to be seeing aortic stenosis on a fairly routine basis. But Mike, what's the underlying issue with aortic stenosis, and why does it cause problems for patients? it all comes down to the size of the opening. Now, the normal aortic valve is about three centimeters in diameter, and aortic stenosis starts to kick in when it's about half that size. And it gets severe when it's less than one centimeter in diameter. As the aortic valve starts to shrink and it gets smaller, the LV has to work harder. And so the left ventricle is working harder and harder to keep up the ejection fraction, and that's good in the short term. But as it progresses, the LV gets more and more hypertrophied, and just like patients with chronic hypertension, they develop diastolic heart failure. And so what you're seeing with aortic stenosis is not just aortic stenosis. They're aortic stenosis with LVH and possibly diastolic heart failure. And this is where it gets a little complicated. Now, aortic stenosis in general is preload dependent. However, because they have diastolic heart failure, they also don't tolerate overload very well. And so one of the keys here really is keeping them in that middle zone. Not too much, not too little, but being aware that the preload aspect is really critical in these patients. That is very tricky, and it makes sense on why preload is so important. You have to have that volume to move blood flow across the stenotic valve, which is much more difficult in later stages because of that severe obstruction. Presentation. So how does the presentation differ in later stages with that severe obstruction versus the earlier stages of the disease where there's minimal obstruction? Early on, a lot of these patients really don't have many symptoms at all. Only about a third of patients will develop symptoms in the first couple of years. 
And there's really three major symptoms we care about. Syncope, angina, and dyspnea. And you can recall this with the SAD, the SAD mnemonic. Once a patient becomes symptomatic with aortic stenosis, they have a much worse outcome with a mean survival of only about two to three years. So you want to make sure that we're asking these patients about syncope, angina, and dyspnea. On exam, you're going to be listening for this classic aortic stenosis murmur. This is a crescendo, decrescendo, systolic ejection murmur heard best at the right upper sternal border. As their aortic stenosis worsens, that murmur will get louder and louder. But at a certain point, when it's really severe, it can get quiet. And that's when you have to be really nervous. This sounds kind of like that patient with asthma. You know, if I hear wheezing, I know they're at least moving air and we have some time. But when their chest is quiet, they have a very severe obstruction. They're not moving air and we need to emergently intervene. It's the same concept for aortic stenosis, just now with blood flow instead of air. Tests and exams. So let's take that patient with aortic stenosis and say they're critically ill. What testing do you recommend initially in the ED? All these patients are going to get an EKG. And you may see left ventricular hypertrophy. You might see left atrial enlargement. But you're primarily looking for evidence of ischemia. These patients will also often get a chest x-ray. You might see a boot-shaped heart, which is typical of left ventricular hypertrophy. You can also see post-stenotic aortic dilatation as a compensatory mechanism. And you'll be looking for evidence of pulmonary edema, suggesting they have worsening heart failure. All right, so fairly straightforward workup then with the chest x-ray and the EKG. We're probably also going to be obtaining some labs because of how these patients will present with the syncope, the angina, or the dyspnea. But Mike, you still haven't mentioned your favorite imaging modality. What's ultrasound's role in aortic stenosis? And is this something we can use at the bedside? Absolutely. The test of choice in aortic stenosis is an echocardiogram. It can assess for the degree of aortic stenosis, the chamber size, hypertrophy, the left ventricular function, and it can also identify mitral regurgitation, which is associated with worse outcomes in these patients. But this isn't always feasible in the ED, whether the patient's unstable or you just don't have easy access to it. Fortunately, this is where point of care ultrasound comes in. I know point of care ultrasound really should be in every podcast, but especially this one. Pocus bias aside, there's studies that have shown very good agreement between ED physicians and echocardiographers for the ability to diagnose LV function as well as aortic stenosis. This is something that is absolutely in our wheelhouse and should be part of the early assessment of these patients. Treatment. For treatment, obviously one of the first items on my list is going to be getting a hold of cardiology and the CT surgeon. But let's say this patient presents with an acute heart failure exacerbation. We had talked about the importance of preload earlier, but nitroglycerin and diuretics are typical go-to agents are both going to decrease preload. Where does that leave us for treatment when these patients come in with suspected heart failure? These patients can become quite complicated. Now, traditionally, we've been told to stay away from these type of agents like diuretics and nitrates. But remember, these patients still have heart failure. And so some of these typical medications are still going to work in these patients. In fact, there was a study looking at aortic stenosis in patients with pulmonary edema, comparing them against patients who had pulmonary edema without aortic stenosis. And they found that nitroglycerin didn't have any significant effect on hypotension. Other studies have looked at afterload-reducing agents like nitroprusside. And I'm not a fan of nitroprusside in general. However, it does speak to the fact that you can give afterload-reducing agents in these patients and have good outcomes. Ultimately, we're going to treat this similar to other heart failure patients. We're going to treat the pulmonary edema. We're going to decrease afterload. We're going to target euvolemia. 
And if they're volume up, you're going to give them a diuretic. But we do not need to be routinely giving diuretics in these patients, only those who show signs of fluid overload. And the key here is they need to be tightly monitored. So you need to be watching these patients really closely because if you overshoot and you bring their volume too far down, they can get sick really fast. And I think the really key point here is that we should be involving our specialists early because they are so complicated. We want to involve cardiology and cardiac surgery in these patients because it may not be something we can necessarily fix with just medications. That at least gives us some room to work with. We're basically tailoring our treatment to the patient in front of us, targeting euvolemia. But Mike, I'm going to make this a lot more difficult for us. What happens if the patient is hypotensive? What do we need to be thinking about for this type of patients? These cases can become complicated. Now, because these patients are preload dependent, that's going to be your first starting point. Restore the preload, get the intravascular volume up. But if that doesn't work, you're going to need to give vasopressors. The general rule for vasopressors in aortic stenosis is to give the lowest dose for the shortest amount of time. Because remember, these vasopressors increase afterload, which can make it harder for the heart to pump. Plus, these are not normal hearts. And so when you put that strain on them, it increases the myocardial oxygen demand and can actually cause the decreased ejection fraction as well. That said, you have to make sure to balance this with ensuring enough perfusion. There was a study looking at patients with aortic stenosis who had cardiovascular collapse. And when they compared patients with aortic stenosis versus control patients, the MAP threshold for having a cardiovascular collapse was much higher in aortic stenosis, meaning patients with aortic stenosis would have cardiovascular collapse when their MAP dipped below 51. And that's compared with your average patient, which was about 35. So their MAP threshold is a lot higher, which makes it, again, important to kind of maintain that balance ensure they have enough MAP that they don't go into cardiovascular collapse. If we have to use a vasopressor, is there one in particular that you recommend? Obviously, we have many different choices here. If I had to choose, I would go with phenylephrine. There isn't great data on any of these, so we're going to rely a little bit more on our pathophysiology. Phenylephrine, remember, is an alpha agonist, and it's predominantly alpha. And so the benefit here is it causes vasoconstriction, but it avoids the tachycardia. The majority of these patients who are hypotensive are going to be tachycardic, and we don't want to exacerbate that because the faster the heart rate, the less blood that actually exits the heart. If you didn't have access to it or you needed to use another agent, I might consider norepinephrine next, with epinephrine really being one of my last line agents because it's most likely to cause the tachycardic response. You mentioned tachycardia, so let's talk about heart rate. If they're unstable, we're going to be using electricity. But what should we consider if that patient comes in with bradycardia or tachycardia, and what medications can we use? The key here is maintaining that midline. We don't want their heart rate too high or too low. If their heart rate gets too low, you can use an agent like dobutamine, but remember, that's going to drop your blood pressure, so you got to keep a close eye on the blood pressure with these meds. If they're tachycardic, we're going to treat this similarly to other patients with tachycardia. You can use a beta blocker or a calcium channel blocker or digoxin. But again, you have to watch these patients really closely. We looked at blood pressure. We talked a bit about heart rate. Let's say we tried all these strategies. We tried all these medications. Nothing's working, and the patient is still decompensating. What do we do then? The key is we have to involve our specialists early. These patients may not respond to typical medications, and they may need an emergent aortic valve replacement. If they're unstable, you might even consider a percutaneous balloon dilatation. It's kind of a bridge to therapy. And you could also consider ECMO as a way to bypass the heart in specific cases. Summary. The pathophysiology of aortic stenosis comes down to that stenotic valve restricting blood flow 
that results in that classic systolic ejection murmur. There are many different risk factors, but keep in mind age and inflammatory conditions. Symptoms of advanced disease reflect that sad mnemonic, syncope, angina, and dyspnea. The go-to test in the ED will be ultrasound and an EKG. Your keys to management are focusing on euvolemia and a normal heart rate, as well as speaking with your cardiologists and CT surgeons early. In patients with heart failure, consider your normal treatments, but focus on euvolemia. For hypotensive patients, start first by addressing preload. You can use vasopressors like phenylephrine, but use them at the lowest effective dose for the shortest duration of time. The treatment of choice is valve replacement, but we do have some options that can temporize the patient like ECMO and balloon dilation. Time for the Ultra Ultra Summary of EMA, content that was published in January. This is Spaced Recognition. Recognition. Repetition. Spaced Repetition. Abstract one. And the first paper is the effect of vasopressin and methylprednisolone versus placebo on return of spontaneous circulation in patients with in-hospital cardiac arrest. A randomized trial it was in JAMA. It was the first one that they did, and it didn't work. So what they did was they basically did the standard sort of resuscitation for people that were not alive, and this was an inpatient study, versus what they gave them is some methylprednisolone and some vasopressin for the first four rounds. And it didn't work. Yeah, you got more ROSC. Yeah, we've seen that before. But did people leave the hospital neurologically intact more often? And no. Abstract two. Now let's do number two, or abstract two, which was angiography after cardiac arrest, out of hospital cardiac arrest, without ST segment elevation in the New England Journal of Medicine. And so the idea is if you've got somebody that arrests and you get them to the emergency department and then you do a post-arrest EKG and you're like, damn, they're having a huge anterior MI or something like that, you take them to the cath lab and those people probably do better. But what about the people who don't clearly have a big MI? Well, it turns out this didn't work. And in fact, in fact, this was worse. So if they don't clearly have a reason to go to the cath lab, it's better to everybody calm down and uh, sort of do your normal resuscitation and maximize uh, you know, their blood pressure and their temperature and do all those things that you do so well. But the cath lab is not a place for them to go early. It doesn't work. In fact, it might make things worse. Abstract 5. I'm going to jump because I did some COVID stuff, but abstract 5 was venous thromboembolism in patients discharged from the immune department with ankle fractures, a population-based cohort study, Annals of Immune Mass in September 2021. This was a big study, big population. And they found that if you were, you know, got a splint in your upper extremity versus your lower extremity, you were more likely to get DVT in your lower extremity. Okay, five times more likely. So this sort of reminds us that it's not just being old and frail and needing a splint that causes your risk of DVT to go up. But if it's in your lower extremity, it's going up. It went up to the point where you need to actually even think about, do I need to prophylactically anticoagulate these patients? Because it was about, I think, 3% is what we're talking about here. So, you know, just saying, mm, lower extremity uh, injury with a splint is a risk factor for a DVT. And I know you're saying, like, yeah, we know that, right? Well, actually, we didn't know it that well. We know it more wells now. Abstract 6. Abstract 6 that they did, the influence of the availability heuristic on physicians in the emergency department. Annals of Emergency Medicine, August 2021. It's fascinating. So here is the idea. If you're minding your own business and all of a sudden you're working in the emergency department and you diagnose a PE, are you likely to then start looking for PEs more often because you're like, oh, this person had tachycardic and they had a PE. And yesterday, so everybody's tachycardic, I'm going to look for a PE today. There's this idea that what you saw recently can really affect your practice. It's a big study. It's from the VA. 
And without going into the detail, they basically said that appears to be true. That if you have a case of something, in this case it was PE, you have a PE, then your testing actually would go up for about two weeks, trying to sniff out the next PE, and then it would come down. Now, there is a really good discussion by Mike and Witt about what that means. Is this about pattern recognition, or is this just this availability heuristic? I saw a bad thing recently. I do not want to miss a bad thing uh, again soon. So it does appear that it's, uh, we really are affected by what we saw in the last, in this case, just in the last few weeks is going to make us go, oh, I saw a PE. I'm going to look for more PEs. And then as you realize you're doing lots more studies for PEs and not finding any, you go back to your baseline. Very interesting. So I don't exactly know what to do with this, but just know that that's a thing. That if tomorrow you go and diagnose a rare or very difficult to you know, diagnose dissection, you're probably going to look for a lot more dissections, at least in the next couple of weeks, according to this paper. Not necessarily the best practice, but hey, you're human, things happen. Abstract 8. Abstract 8 was an interesting little paper about the modified, I'm talking about modified stone score, and it was evaluation of patients with flank pain in the emergency department by modified stone score, Annals of Emergency Medicine 2021. And basically it said that, uh, yeah, if you've got the big score on the stone scoring thing, then you probably don't need to do anything else and just sort of follow these patients as an outpatient, see if they pass it themselves, because it's pretty good when you get a high score for saying, yeah, this is almost certainly a stone and you don't need to CT scan them today. So go check it out. It's the modified, that is the modified stone score. And you can also check out the chapter on renal colic in the pendium that is core. Abstract 9. They did Abstract 9, which was another renal colic paper, and it is, Does Early Intervention Improve Outcomes for Patients with Acute Renal Colic? Journal, uh, the Canadian Journal of Emergency Medicine 2021. And this is a really interesting one to go listen to, because Mike explains what a propensity score thing is. So it's not like a randomized trial, but what you're trying to do is to try and look at two people who had two sort of different interventions that look the same. So it's kind of like faking a randomized trial. Uh, that's my understanding of it, but Mike explains it and uh, it's really good. But basically what this article says, so you've got that person, they've got a bit of a stony stone, it's distal and it's not too big. Is it better to just try and, you know, tough it out medically, give them that analgesia and see if they can whiz it out themselves versus sending them to a urologist and see what your outcomes are? And when they did this study, and it's pretty good methodology, they found that guess what? Guess what? If you send somebody to a urologist who's got a bit of a stony stone, who's complaining of pain and all that stuff, the urologist is going to do an intervention. And it turns out if the urologist did that intervention, they were likely to need a second intervention. And as Mike uh, points out and Whit points out, you know, having a small stone distally that's a bit painful is, you know, it's, we don't like that. But going to a urologist and potentially getting a UTI and getting a giant piece of plastic stuck between your kidney and your bladder is also not a good idea. And in fact, you did better off if you toughed it out with a bit of outpatient medical therapy. So don't be too quick. Don't be too quick to send these people off to urology if they've failed outpatient analgesia and maybe they just need a little tweaking of that stuff versus just sending them back to primary care and say, let's keep these people away from the urologists because they're going to do things to them and that may not be good. We're not talking about the complicated patients. We're not talking about you know, the big stones and the giant hydro. We're just like the little stones. Do not routinely send these people to the urologist is what I learned, because they can't help themselves. You know, there's interventions to be done and they would like to do them. Abstract 10. Abstract 10 is a good one to know about. It's uh, early computed tomography, coronary angiography in patients with suspected acute coronary syndromes, a randomized clinical trial was in the British Medical Journal. And this is a study that said 
in a select group of patients, and this was actually people with moderate probability of ACS. This is not the patients that you're sending home. This is not that low-risk group that you're looking after, and now you're getting sort of sensitive and sometimes ultra-sensitive troponins and sending them home. This is not that group. This is more of an inpatient group where they've, you've got a moderate risk, and they sort of decided, well, uh, should we do the CT scanning or should we do the old-fashioned so treadmills and all that stuff? And they found for one of the first times that doing CT scanning in that group was uh, resulted in you know, no significant increase in angiographies and stuff like that. Now, Mike brings up the point that in the past, say 10 years ago, there was a lot of interest in whether we could use CT scanning for low-risk chest pain patients and get them out of the emergency department and not intervene too much. And it really failed because there's lots of uh, false positives. And so we moved away from that and we used heart scores and other things, and that seems to be working much better. But it might be that in an inpatient group, in a group that has a bigger chance of having the disease, that CT scanning with their new protocols might actually be useful. So I bring this up not because I think it's something that you're going to start doing in the emergency department, because again, the people that uh, you're low-risk ones, you should be sending home using your other protocols, not using CT scanning until we have more information, but more to just know that this is out there. And so it might start another whole flood of CT scans for low-risk patients, which sort of failed about a decade ago. Abstract 11. Abstract 11. I think we'll finish on this. Abstract 11, I really like because I like procedures. This is emergency cricothyroidomy in a morbid obesity, comparing the bougie-guided and traditional techniques in a live animal model. So here's the idea. They took some sheeps and they injected into these sheeps' necky necks, lots of blood and lots of saline to simulate an obese neck. And then they asked the question, which is faster, a traditional approach or a bougie approach where you basically, you know, stick the bougie in first and then you put the airway over the top of it. And I like this, even though the study is not huge and it's not greatly powered, to just remind you that you should have a number of different approaches to the emergency airway, particularly crikes. And this idea of a sort of a bougie guided crike makes a lot of sense to me. So do your crike the normal way, and Mike brings up the really important point, the most important thing is getting that trach hook in and lifting it up so that uh, you can see what you're doing, feel what you're doing, and get your tubes in there. But to put in a bougie first, and then as Whitney said, you know, do that Seldinger technique where you put the tube over the bougie, makes a lot of sense to me. And in this study, it looks like it was faster. Again, some methodological issues, but it looked like it was like two minutes instead of three minutes kind of thing which is still not fast enough, but a minute off is good. I think these bougie-guided procedures are really helpful. That bougie is an amazing thing. It's just a piece of plastic, but it slips in there really easy, and then you can put the bigger piece of plastic with the balloons and stuff over the top. That's all we have time for. They did many more papers. There was much more discussion. There was methodology discussion. There was so many good papers. You need to listen to the whole show. How many times do you have to hear this? You need to listen to the whole show. You need to listen to it multiple times. You need to become a literature legend. The only way you're going to do that is if you listen to the show multiple times a month. My name is Mel Herbert. This was the Ultra Ultra Summary, and we are Dunsies. 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 This is Spaced Recognition. Who are you? Recognition. Repetition. I didn't recognize you. Dunsies. Dunsies. Repeat after me. After me. Repetition. Repetition. I didn't recognize you. Dunsies. Dunsies. Repeat after me. This is Spaced Recognition. Who are you? Alright, Jan, it is time for the mailbag, and I've got a big bag of letters from the home office in North Hero, Vermont. Ooh, North Hero, Vermont. It sounds beautiful. I want to go there. 
It does, and I want to live there. I want to live in North Hero, Vermont. <laughs> I want to live. I want that to be my address. <laughs> I want to live there in North Hero, Vermont. Well, I might move up to the home office, Jeff. You could be sitting and drinking champagne and toasting the cows of Lake Champlain. I'll never move, never move. All right, what do we got? Let's reach in and grab something. Letter one. So, from one of our listeners this month, we have this great question. This listener says, I have on multiple coding children and neonates placed an 18 to 20 gauge ultrasound guided IV in the femoral vein, utilizing sterile technique for access, of course. Two that I can remember lived to hospital discharge and to organ harvest. It rapidly led to venous access and calmed each resuscitation. I have found issues with IOs from time to time. The blood draw doesn't work. The fluids don't infuse. And there are also issues with lab analysis, especially CBC. I looked through PubMed to see if this was a reported practice. Could you look into this practice and see if it's been published? If not, could you get expert opinion whether this is an acceptable practice? Well, Jen, we don't have one expert opinion here. We've got two. We've got two expert opinions from two of our fantastic pediatric experts, Eileen Claudius and Al Sacchetti. Let's hear what they have to say. I have heard about resuscitation after resuscitation where an IO was started, it blew, started, it blew. An IO is a fantastic line, but in these little kids, when we're rapidly infusing a lot of different meds, there's a lot going on, they do tend to get dislodged. So having a more definitive line is great if you can get one. Central lines are tough in kids and they can take forever to do. A lot of times you'll get a great flashback and then you just can't thread that wire. What I have heard done by a few of my colleagues and I like to do myself is when you open up that central line kit, they have the regular needle that we thread the wire through, but they also have that catheter over the needle that most of us throw away. If you're doing a femline in a critically ill child, use that when you go to get central access because you can always thread the wire through the catheter, but if the wire doesn't thread and you have that thing in the femoral vessel, you still have access. I found one article from 1986 looking at saphenous cutdown, IO, and percutaneous femoral vein catheterization, like our listeners discussing. And while no technique was foolproof, utilization of these techniques resulted in decreased time to access. So this is a good way to try. Literature is a little bit scant, but not completely deficient. And I love what you're doing. Vascular access in any sick kid's is always an issue. But I think there's a couple of things that kind of stick out in my mind with this, this question. Number one is, if it's a full cardiac arrest, I think the IO route is the best route to go. I think it's easy. I, I've not had a whole lot of problem with it, especially with the, the drill-type systems. It's easy to get the access, and it's, it provides decent flow. I'm not that worried about the lab studies at this point. I think that once you get beyond the age of about one and maybe one and a half, two, that you really want to start looking at more of a vascular access. And if I'm going to look for vascular access in a kid that age, particularly somebody who's coding, I think I want to get above the diaphragm. I'm a big believer that meds that are given below the diaphragm in a cardiac arrest outside of the infant age group just don't get to the heart. And I think there's enough opportunity to at least attempt vascular access above the diaphragm. In a two-year-old, one-and-a-half-year-old, the external juggler is a big vein, and it's not that hard to get into, especially if you drop the kid into a little bit of Trendelenburg. It'll descend the vein nicely. 
otherwise, once you get into the vessel, obviously you tilt them the other way because you want the, the blood or fluid to run to the heart. I think the problem with accessing the femoral vein, which I think is, is great access in a sick child, but not in a cardiac arrest, I just don't think there's that much of an advantage over doing a simple IO line. I do like the femoral line in a sick kid, particularly one who's, who you do, you're not doing any chest compressions on. The other thing I would point out about it, you talked about using an a 18 or an, a 620 gauge catheter to get in there. That's fine. But realistically, the central access kits for children, and they have either a three French or a five French catheter, it's a needle and a wire, and it's a much longer catheter. So it's a much more stable line. If I'm going to use an ultrasound to put a femoral line in, I'm going to use a formal CVP kit to put it in there. You just need to make sure that your department has a pediatric size central venous uh, catheter kit to, to give you access to the femoral vein. I don't see any advantage to using just a plain IV in that circumstance. It's easier to get it in. It's more secure. Uh, the wire will allow you to, to slip it in a little bit better. So I'm a, I'm a fan of just using a central venous kit if I'm going to go femoral on an infant or a small child. If I'm not going to go femoral, and you can in an older child slip the same CVC kits in through the external juggler. It's a easy access, simple uh, needle goes in, throw the wire over it. And again, you're more likely to get a successful vascular access going over that wire than you are just using a plain old IV. The other area that I will go with if, if need be is a supraclavicular approach in these kids. A lot of times just getting into the internal juggler, you don't have the right angle with the probe. So it's a little bit more challenging. So I, I will go supraclavicular on the kids. I will we'll take this opportunity, though, to reinforce the idea that any department, whether you're a department that sees almost no children or a department that sees children all the time, has got to make sure they have all the right equipment. The, um, the central venous kits for the kids, they're easy enough to have. They're, they're excellent access. They make it much more likely you'll be successful. And they're part of the guidelines for the care of children in the emergency department. If you look at that, it lists all the equipment that you have. And you really should have that and everything else on that list if you're going to hang a sign outside your, your hospital that says emergency, because whether you're a pediatric center or not, you're going to get a mom that's going to bring their sick kid into you. Otherwise, th those are my uh, opinions on what to do with um, a sick kid, IO, femoral, external juggler, or any port in a storm. All right, take care. So that's it for Mailbag this month. Please keep those letters and questions and comments coming. We really look forward to them. Don't go wasting your vacations. Come out to the Green Mountain State and get a nice green license plate. Here in North Hero, Vermont. So let yourself get carried away. There's a level one trauma 40 minutes away. Here in North Hero, Vermont. Monster. Like that? <laughs> All right. Welcome to the mega, mega, mega summary for February 2021. This was a great month with lots of great pieces. And we are going to start out with also kind of one of my favorites. Which is you, Swami, talking to Scott Weingart about Devil's Advocate. Every once in a while, Scott doesn't want a letter. He wants to, you know, pick a little bit with some of the pieces that we have. And so he actually picked four different pieces that he had things to add. And I will say that it wasn't as much of picking disagreement, but a lot of kind of emphasis of important points that we brought up 
The first was the July 2021 piece on traumatic arthrotomy. And that was with Neha Rocker. And Scott just added a couple of things that are really important. He thinks that CT is pretty darn good to look at joint penetration, but says, forget about how good it is or how good it isn't or how the literature is not as robust as we like it to be. Just talk to your orthopedic department and come up with a plan together on how you're going to evaluate these patients. You don't want to be debating the literature on Saturday night when you've got a maybe or maybe not open joint. Come up with a plan on how you're going to take care of those patients. Bring in radiology, bring in orthopedics, bring in emergency medicine so you all are on the same page. I think that is a great plan. And Scott talks about this a lot, is that when you have multiple moving parts, multiple consultants involved, get them all at the table, come up with a plan together. The next thing that he wanted to talk about was consciousness during CPR, and he echoes the use of ketamine here, but also adds that this is a good place to add a paralytic. If you give ketamine, the patients sedate, but they're still moving around, and it's interrupting your resuscitation, go ahead and paralyze the patient. But here you can use a 0.5 mg per kg of rocuronium. That'll give you about 30 to 45 minutes of paralysis. It'll wear off a little faster than the higher doses, which you really don't need here because the onset isn't as important. The next piece in here that he wanted to talk about was about insulin pumps, noting that an insulin pump is a constant infusion of short-acting insulin. When you have a patient that you maintain on that insulin pump, you don't need to start them on long-acting insulin. And in fact, starting them on long-acting insulin can actually delay their moving out of the ICU or them being ready for discharge home because you got to wait for that stuff to wear off before you get them back onto their insulin pump. And then finally, he wanted to remind us about central retinal artery occlusion that in many places that is considered a stroke equivalent. And if in your place it is considered a stroke equivalent, go ahead and call your stroke neurologist because they might actually recommend thrombolytics. Whether or not thrombolytics are indicated for this, it depends on your institution. So if your institution considers CRAO as a stroke of the eye, get your neurologist on board as soon as you can. I think that CRAO point is a really important one. Often those patients with an eye complaint just get sort of triaged to your eye room if you have one or your lower acuity area. But really, that point about it being a stroke equivalent is a good one. And, you know, they need neurology, they need ophthalmology, they need coordination of services. And so they can be sicker patients than you think in the sense that they're going to need a higher level of service. There's a very big hole in the bottom of me bucket. All right, Jan, what did we have in rural medicine this month? So this month, Vanessa Cardi tells us a wonderful story of a case that she was directly involved with. And this was a 52-year-old man who was out at sea on a ship. And Vanessa does some work doing some medical direction on the phone with different outfits that are out there at sea. And so this is a 52-year-old man who has acute urinary retention, and he is far, far away. This boat has been out there for 10 days. They have another week to go. They're 200 miles from shore. And the ship's captain calls up saying that this guy can't pee and he is very uncomfortable and what can he do? And it sounds from the history that he had preceding nocturia and decreased stream strength and so all those kind of prostate type symptoms. But he also immediately before the event had felt some dysuria prior to the inability to pee. She's there as the medical control person knowing that they can't catheterize this person, which is obviously the answer. But she is able to see the list of medications they have on board. So she's considering some different options. And then the next question she has to face is, do you tell the boat to head to shore, send a medevac type of helicopter situation? Obviously, the answer here is going to be yes, because they cannot do a catheterization on board. So it turns out the medications on board here included tamsulosin and acetaminophen. So Dr. Cardi elected to give the patient 0.8 milligrams of tamsulosin, a gram of acetaminophen, and some oral ciprofloxacin, assuming that he might have a UTI. So an hour goes by, the captain calls back, and it hasn't worked. The meds haven't worked. 
And so she decides to also give some lorazepam at this point, and the helicopter is on its way. They call back an hour later, and bam, he peed. And the urine dip showed three plus lukes and some nitrites, so it's probably a UTI, and it has a happy ending. But boy, it was great, great to work through this case and think about what do you do if you don't have a catheter? Not an easy procedure to walk someone through of uh, dropping a Foley catheter, even if they have one on board, which they didn't, or doing a suprapubic catheterization. I don't think I want a suprapubic cath on a boat. That's not one of the things that I want to have or, or that I want to be advising to do. So uh, great. And I think that the important thing here is knowing what medications are available to you, because maybe it was the combination of all of those things together that eventually kicked in and helped this guy pee. And then, of course, knowing you're out. I got to get this guy off the boat. He can't stay on there. So that was a, a great little piece. Again, not something that I run into very often, but now I know to ask, what medications do you guys have? Maybe that'll help to advise me. Car. Our next segment, Jan, was the endocarditis piece that you alluded to up front with David Carr. And I really enjoyed getting into this again because I see a lot of endocarditis now and I don't want to miss it. And David talks about a lot of the ins and outs and how endocarditis is so difficult because the patients often have nonspecific symptoms. And you really have to combine those nonspecific symptoms with risk factors. And that's what pushes you towards endocarditis. Fever and murmur are the most common things. But a lot of the physical exam features that we learn about in medical school, you almost never see them. Just get over it. You're not going to see a bunch of rot spots and Janeway lesions. That's not how you're going to make this diagnosis. And what might actually really help us is getting better at point of care ultrasound, cardiac ultrasound. The sensitivity isn't great, but the specificity is very good. So if you see a vegetation, you've got your diagnosis. You can move forward with what needs to be done, but don't rely on not seeing it to rule it out. And then he gets into the risk factors, the groups of patients that suspected it. They're the usual suspects, the ones that we always think about it in, the IV drug use patient, the patient with a valve replacement. But then he also notes these unusual suspects, the patients with non-bacterial endocarditis, morantic endocarditis that you can see in cancer patients, the lupus patients that have Liebman-Sachs endocarditis. You got to think about those too. And then the fever plus. Anyone who's seen a David Carr lecture knows he loves the plus. So fever plus syndromes for endocarditis. Fever plus stroke, fever plus back pain, fever plus CHF, fever plus a new AV block. You got to think about endocarditis as a possibility. The final two pieces here are about blood cultures and treatment. Blood cultures, really important. Sometimes we get these and we discharge the patient. We get called back with results. And one of the ones that David says don't ignore is the coag negative staph, which typically, let's be honest, we ignore. We ignore coag negative staph. But he says, you know, one of the coag negative staphs that can lead to endocarditis is this bacteria called Staph Lugidenesis or slug. And if you see that on your blood culture, you better get that patient back in the hospital. They have endocarditis. They need that to be treated. And the treatment here, most of these patients, they're not ill-appearing. They're not septic. We can usually wait a little bit to get the antibiotics on board, which means that we can talk to our infectious disease colleagues, come up with a good plan of what to give these patients. Often we're using vancomycin, especially in the patients who are IV drug users because they're at a high risk for staph but we do have to cover other things. So this is a good place to get your infectious disease colleagues on board. And then don't forget, consult cardiology, consult cardiothoracic surgery, because many of these patients are going to need those services as well. I thought this was a great review. You know, you're often faced with patients with a fever where you don't know where it's coming from. And endocarditis is frequently something that we consider. And so again, layering in the question about risk factors and the fever plus and reminding yourself of the other types of endocarditis that could be out there were all a super valuable review for me. Gita Pensa. Brian Hayes. Next up, we had Gita Pensa and Brian Hayes talking about drugs and atrial fibrillation 
with rapid ventricular response. And this was a great talk, uh, just a review of all the things that we commonly talk about when we have a patient with AFib and RVR. Now, remember, this is a pharmacology talk, so it's not focused on the question of cardiovert, not cardiovert. It's just about what drugs are you going to choose. And they basically review all of the options. And they start with the very obvious question, which is calcium channel blocker or beta blocker first. And of course, we know either is okay, but in the ED, we tend to lean towards calcium channel blockers. But if you love beta blockers or they're on one as an outpatient, that is a totally an okay way to go. And in fact, again, to reiterate that point, Brian says, you know, if you're taking one or the other as an outpatient, go ahead and stick with that class. That's a good idea. What about deltaism dosing? The drug insert says to start with 0.25 mg per kilo, which is a weight-based dosing strategy. But Brian talks about a study that compared that weight-based dosing strategy to a routine starting dose of 10 milligrams. And this particular study found that they were about roughly equal. So he just says, you know, you can kind of go either way. You don't have to go one way or the other. We know that once we get a bolus in, if it does work, don't forget to give a PO dose. Brian was not a huge fan of drips, but they do give a discussion to whether you would start a drip or not. The other question that comes up often is if I start with one and it doesn't work, can I switch from one class to the other? Can I go from calcium channel blocker to beta blocker? Is their heart just going to stop? And the answer is yes, you can switch from one class to the other. There is some risk to this. We all have heard anecdotal stories of people's hearts stopping kind of thing, but the risk is lower than what we might think. And we can minimize that risk by giving some time in between doses and also start at a lower dose that you might have otherwise started with that agent when you were going with it alone. Now, what if the blood pressure is soft? What if I have a blood pressure on the lower side? And here, Brian talks about three different options. One is to give calcium before you push your calcium channel blocker, and he recommends two grams of calcium gluconate. That might help mitigate the drop. Number two is to give magnesium as an adjunct agent to your lower dose calcium channel blocker or beta blocker. A dose of two to four grams would be appropriate here. And your other option is to go with an esmolol drip. Do something that's short acting, still going to work, a little bit more resource intensive, but maybe a good choice if you've got a soft blood pressure because you could just turn it off. And of course, another option is to cardiovert. And again, we did not discuss it here since it's a pharmacology segment. And the one final point that I would add that they didn't really talk about, but I thought about during the segment, which is just that when you see someone with AFib that comes in with a fast rate, it's not just necessarily purely RVR that you want to jump on with an AV nodal blocker. Just consider, do they have sepsis? Do they have something else that's making them appropriately tachycardic, in which case I don't want to walk in with an AV nodal blocker? And most of the time when the patients that I've seen at least have that soft blood pressure and I'm trying to figure out what agent, it's because something else is going on. And that AFib was really just them compensating for some underlying etiology. We've talked about AFib in the critical patient with Scott in the past. Go back to that segment and listen to it. But yes, absolutely. Start with, is this AFib with RVR just their sinus tack? There's something really bad going on that I have to address first. And then once you decide this is just lone AFib, go ahead and use whichever agent you want. I don't love switching from one class to another. I was scared out of that as a resident. I've seen it go wrong once out of the many, many times I've done it, but I think it is another reason to really carefully think about what agent you're going to start with because you're probably going to end up sticking with it. Dr. Eli Margolini. Our next segment was another one that gives me a little bit of palpitations, a little bit of angina, which is the posterior stroke. I find these really difficult. It's like every patient who says they're dizzy or maybe they have vertigo, I have to think about the posterior stroke. We got into this with Evie Marcolini going over how to make this diagnosis, when to be worried about it, what symptoms make you concerned. 
And a lot of the problem here is that the NIH SS score that we have it slammed into our brains, we have to know it, we have to be ready to use it. It wasn't really made for posterior strokes and it can lead us astray. It can lead us away from making that diagnosis or away from how sick that patient is in front of us. So we talk about the different imaging modalities that need to be considered here. The fact that non-con head CT doesn't give us a ton of information. CT angio can give us a little bit more information. Perfusion imaging can be even better. MRI ultimately is what you want. You want that MRI to really get a good sense of what's going on in that posterior circulation, which is why this can be so difficult. And Jen, what I have put in my brain to defer to is that if the patient is older, if they're a vasculopath, don't think that that dizziness or that vertigo is something benign. Start with the really serious thing first and then work your way back away from it. And when I can't, when I can't pull myself away from that, then those are the patients that I'm going to keep in the hospital. I'm going to get them a further workup. Usually they are not in the thrombolytic window. And Evie talks about that, that often these patients had these vague symptoms. They weren't severe enough to get to the hospital within the thrombolytic window. And that's not really what you're considering. What you're really trying to consider is, do I need to admit this patient for a stroke workup? Or can I get them feeling a little bit better and send them home? It's a really tough decision to make, but I think this segment helps us to push in one direction or another of which way to go with those patients. Yeah, I thought this was a great review. This is a good complementary piece to the piece we did in December 2021, where Mike Weinstock talked with Evie about peripheral vertigo versus central causes of vertigo or posterior stroke. And this piece was kind of like the next step of that conversation to kind of go through, okay, you know, more in detail about posterior stroke, how to work it up, what the treatment might be or might not be. And I agree with you. I think that, you know, the big barrier to getting MRIs is just practical in most places. You know, they don't have an MRI or you can't easily access one. And so, you know, you talk yourself into other things, but really I think just embrace it. Embrace the MRI. Just get it when you need to get it and let, <laughs> let yourself sleep well at night that you didn't miss one of these. I agree, Jen. Sometimes that is the best way to go. Rick's Rants! What do we have in Rick's Rants this month? So this month, Rick is ranting about price variations. And when I mean price variations, I'm not talking about the things down at the supermarket. I'm talking about hospital charges, the price variability that occurs when hospitals negotiate with various insurance carriers. It's the kind of thing you know about, but when you're reminded of that madness, you just shake your head. And he shares a bunch of crazy examples. And here's one. At a particular hospital, the same MRI costs $1,000 versus $4,000. And this is negotiated with the same insurance company, but one is with the HMO plan and one is with the PPO plan. And so these prices just all over the place just don't make sense when you step back and look at it. Now, hospitals are supposed to display their charge master to the public, but most are not doing that. And there's not really a penalty for not doing it right now. But the truth is that we, as providers, we are not aware of the costs of the tests that we do. And often patients get stuck with the bill. And so knowing a little bit about this craziness is important. It's a nice contrast, honestly, to the New Zealand healthcare system piece that we do this month with Ryan Radecki and Cedric Dark. I mean, I thought about that piece when I was listening to this piece, thinking about how nutty our system is and how other systems make more sense. But I mean, this price variation is crazy. Absolutely. I, I do like that we juxtapose those two pieces. Done completely on purpose, of course. We planned this months in advance to have those two pieces in the same episode because it does provide that good juxtaposition. Our next piece was Take Home Naloxone with Gita Pensa and Don Stater. This is a piece, again, that you said you really liked. And this is something that we are doing in my emergency department, which means that when I have a patient who is at risk for opiate harm, I can send them home with a naloxone kit. And that's what Don talks about, why this is so important. 
that we have multiple studies showing a 20 to 30% decrease in death in places where take-home naloxone is available to high-risk patients. The cost, well, the cost is, is really in favor of giving take-home naloxone when you think about the lives saved that are provided by this treatment. Take-home naloxone is far better than simply giving a prescription. Giving a prescription is better than nothing. But take-home naloxone is better because you're putting that in the person's hand. You're showing, one, that your hospital and you care that you want to provide this, but also you're giving it to them. You're not waiting for them to have to go somewhere and get it filled. I think this is a really important step. Don goes through a five-step plan that you can start with in your emergency department, in your state, if this is something that you want to do. And Jan, again, listening to this, the first thing I thought of was, man, I hope we do this. And then I went to work and said, oh, yes, we do do this. But not everybody knows that we do it. So we've made a much bigger deal in the last couple of months of making sure that every clinician knows that take-home naloxone is available. You just put an order in the computer, you ask the nurse, and the nurse will give the patient naloxone to go home with. Yeah, we are actually starting this in our emergency department now. We have a grant that's going to supply this naloxone. We'll have a lockbox in our doctor's area, and we can really just give it out to who we want to. There's a little log that we're going to be putting it in. But I do think this is great, you know, whether it's a patient, which is kind of an easy one to address, but even if it's a family member, you know, anyone that you think might need it, we should just have it there to give out. You know, we have a little jar of free condoms to give out in our ER. And this is like one of those things. It's not exactly the same, but my point is that it could be so helpful. It can prevent so many bad things. And it's just, you know, nice to have it around to give out to patients. The harm reduction potential from giving out naloxone like this is so similar, if not more so than giving out the condoms that we often see in emergency departments. This is a no-brainer win for a hospital to do. World Travels. Next up, uh, we had this wonderful piece with Cedric Dark talking to Ryan Radecki, who is a U.S. doctor who now works in New Zealand. And as you mentioned in the intro, this is a follow-up piece in the segments that Cedric has done about health systems in general. And this particular segment focuses on New Zealand. Now, in New Zealand, they have basically a national health system. So it's kind of like the UK model. And Ryan compares and contrasts it to his experience working in the United States and what he has now working in New Zealand. There, the government funds the entire system. They own the hospitals, the clinics, they employ the physicians. It's obviously financed by taxes, and it pretty much covers everything, with a few exceptions like dental care, eye care, and usually the patients have pretty small co-pays. They remind us that actually here in the U.S., we do have this system. It is very similar to what we do in the VA healthcare system, where the federal government owns the hospital, employs the doctors, pays for everything. Now, in New Zealand, about a third of the population has supplemental insurance. And with all that, they only spend 9% of their GDP on healthcare, which is way less than what we spend here in the U.S. One of the strengths of their system is access to primary care. Now, it is true that you may have to wait a little longer for a specialist or an elective procedure, especially when it's not an urgent condition. But if you do have something urgent, you can get what you need in a timely fashion. Now, they do have a national formulary for medications. When new drugs come out, they go through a lengthy review process to determine whether that very expensive cost translates to value. So for example, the new SLG2 inhibitors for diabetes, which are pretty common here now, are still undergoing review there and probably will come out with some limited indications for particular populations. Jan, that happens in a lot of places here too. You know, I worked in a county system, you work in a county system, there's a formulary. We don't have all drugs available to us and there's a, a group that sits and decides, do we need this new drug? Or can we sit with the old one that we have that's just as effective? Those are important to have in place. It also would allow for hospital systems to really negotiate with the pharmaceutical companies to get prices a little bit lower. 
The VA system doesn't do that in the United States. Cedric pointed that out in the prior piece, but it's something that would really give a lot of power to the system. Listen to this one. And we have in two months coming up, Cedric is going to talk to Terry Mulligan about the system in the Netherlands, which is another different system than New Zealand. It's a system that we have pieces of it in the US, but not as comprehensive. So we're going to we're going to see more of these pieces and more of what the rest of the world is doing for healthcare. Brit Long. And Mike Gottlieb. And then, Jen, our final piece for the month was about aortic stenosis with Britt Long and Mike Gottlieb. And aortic stenosis is a tricky one. It's really common. And most of the time, it's just kind of along for the ride. It's, it's a passenger in your patient's visit to the emergency department until it is the reason they are there and that AS becomes critical. And there's something really, really bad going on. And Britain might go through how to know that AS is the problem and how to manage those patients with a focus on maintaining the person in a euvolemic state with a relatively normal heart rate. That's what they need to maximize their cardiac output. Consulting cardiology and CT surgery early in these patients who have critical aortic stenosis, because there's not much that we can offer to fix that aortic stenosis. You really need that specialist on board how to manage heart failure, that the goals are to reduce pulmonary edema, decrease afterload, make it a little bit easier for that patient to pump. And then that hypotensive patient, the patient who has really bad AS, and now they come in with sepsis. How do we manage that hypotension, ensuring adequate preload, again, targeting euvolemia, adding pressors at the lowest dose, the shortest duration, but understanding that unless we give them some critical MAP threshold, they're not going to perfuse their heart. They're not going to get better cardiac output. I think this is the kind of segment that can empower us to really actively take care of those patients instead of being scared for when that patient comes into our door. And, and Jen, I've seen a couple of these, and I can't say that I felt comfortable managing them. But this piece gets us a long way. And actually, we've got a follow-up piece next month with Weingart talking a little bit more about that critical aortic stenosis patient when they're really sick and how to take care of them. Yeah, aortic stenosis can be kind of scary. And, you know, it all starts with a cardiac exam. I mean, you have to listen to the heart. You have to kind of know this is going on. Sometimes they walk through the door and tell you they have aortic stenosis, but sometimes they don't. And if you don't actually take a listen, you could miss this. And, you know, this is a mechanical problem. So, you know, knowing what your surgical resources are and how you're going to get this person to definitive treatment can be really important when they're really sick. So this is a great review. And of course, Jan, I'd be remiss if I didn't say, put that ultrasound probe on the heart learn how to look for that aortic stenosis because it's a lot easier. It really is a lot easier than trying to listen and figure it out, but get good at both those skills. Get good at listening and get good at looking. All right, Jan, that's our month. Some fantastic stuff, really good stuff to, to take to our clinical practice every day to improve the way we deliver care, to get better care to patients. And I think that's what we highlighted over and over again this month is how to get better care to the patients that you are seeing every day, day in and day out, February was a fantastic month, Jan, filled with great segments. I can't say that March is going to be any different. March is going to have some great stuff, too. I can't wait to see you in March, Jan. Yeah, I'll see you then. I'm looking forward to it. And remember, everybody, what you do really matters. Next time on MRAP. What is the most common sexually transmitted disease in the United States? Go ahead. It rarely ever stops on its own. In fact, usually it gets worse and worse. But we almost never talk about these patients, cases where we do tests that we probably shouldn't do and they're perfectly normal. The kid did say to dad, oh yeah, I forgot that yesterday I put a bean in my ear to see if it would fit and it stuck. All right, so my heart rate just went from whatever it was, 80 to 120, right? So we're kind of starting to, <laughs> because the words resistance and trach are not a good combination. <laughs>